Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 ho, let's go. It's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the G.I. Joe Comics Podcast. Which, if you ignore all the other G.I. Joe podcasts, is by far the most popular. If you're new to the show, you can find the details over at the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. And today we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 286 with a very special guest. But before we get to that, let me introduce the Omni-Man to my Invincible. It's my co-host, a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners, and hello to our guest, who Mark is about to introduce. Let's do it. Let's go for it. We've got uh, a special guest today, and that special guest is... All right, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking, a G.I. Joe podcast, interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so, not as long as someone's publishing Joe. Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get things started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now. They've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing, we're going in deep. Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. The artist of the issue we were about to talk about, it is Andrew Lee Griffith. Hello. Hi. Andrew is an American comic book artist and is often found in Corisco, Peru, where his wife is from. Andrew is best known for his variant work cover for Gem and the Holograms, but has also worked on the Transformers comics for IDW. But most significantly, he's worked on five of the last six issues of G.I. Joe, including issue 286 that we are talking about today. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So every time we've been doing the credits, uh, we've, we've noted that there is Andrew Lee Griffith. Um, so so why the, why the extra... Uh, Lee, is it because there's another artist who's called Andrew Griffith that you want to differentiate yourself from? No, but there is a, um, a an actor of a previous generation that has a very similar name to myself that people often, uh, for some reason, confuse me with, even though I would, um, if anything, be like his grandson. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh-huh. it's just um, <laughs> um, 
I still get people at conventions that come up to be like, are you Andy Griffith? Are you the, you know, I'm like, uh, yeah, um, wow. that show was on in the sixties and just trying to move away from that. When I first, when I first started, I actually would have used like a, a pseudonym or something, or maybe going by Lee or something. Cause that's my middle name. But I was announced on a project with just Andrew Griffith. And I just kind of went with that for a while, but um, I still hear that enough that I'm trying to kind of, transition away and eventually maybe i don't know do like al griffith or lee griffith or something but um just kind of trying to transition right now to 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 my own name so i'm not you know getting confused with anyone else i shouldn't even be confused with so, um, that's all so we much, should yeah. uh so all of the matlock jokes that we had lined up for today we should just <laughs> file those yeah i'd appreciate it if, if you skip those <laughs> right let me, let me just up, update my script it's just one of those, you know, it's, it's not even like, I don't even like dislike. It's not that I even necessarily like dislike like the, that actor or anything. It's just, it's just something I've heard a few too many times, you know. <laughs> it is completely fair to uh, not want to have your career and work mixed up with someone else, whether or not they're in <laughs> comics, whether or not they're uh, your age, whether or not they're on uh, this continent. Um whether or not they're the front man of Crowded House. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But see, I know a lot of people that have that problem. Like, I know a few people named Chris Evans, you know, the same as Captain America and stuff. So it's like, um, it, it happens. <laughs> I really want people, when they Google me, to, to find me. Uh, but on IMDb, I'm Tim Finn, Roman numeral two. So, uh, Mark, oh. I, have an opening, I have an opening question uh, for Andrew. Andrew, uh, so I first discovered your work in comics as a reader of IDW's Sublime Transformers run. How did okay. you get to? How did you get to IDW? Um, okay, well, yeah, that's a story in and of itself. So um, I, I had always done art and stuff as a kid, and I was um, always wanted to pursue a creative field, especially if I, it was something where I could like draw, whether it was in, like animation or or comics or something. And I was an avid comics reader. I grew up with, you know, all the stuff that we're going to be talking about and Transformers as well. And once I got married, I kind of was at home more and I found myself drawing more again. And I started, you know, finding internet groups, um, whether it's like um, fandom sites or whether it was DeviantArt and things. And I started posting my art and it started getting noticed. And IDW hosted a contest through, um, it was kind of run by some fans, but also in partnership with IDW to be the next Transformers comic artist, I guess cover artist specifically to start with. But anyway, there was like, there, I think there were like 500 people who took part and um, first, you know, submitted art for the first round. There were like three or four rounds and each round different people got eliminated. And um, I actually won like first place in the first two rounds. And then on the third round, um, I placed maybe like, I don't know, fifth or sixth out of like 10. And the top three were supposed to get passed on to IDW. But I still, I still did well enough that like I started getting um, occasional emails and things from people at IDW. And they were like, you know, asking about certain things. And then I got announced on a book, like I mentioned earlier, with my name <laughs> before I had a choice on how I would be credited. That book never came out. It was a spotlight cosmos, but um, it kind of got announced a little prematurely and never happened. But and then so that didn't happen. And I kind of stalled for a bit. And then um, I just got an email randomly from the editor in chief, Chris Ryle. And he was like, hey, do you draw uh, movie Transformers at all? And at that point, I hadn't. So I, um, I kind of rushed some sketches out overnight and sent them to him. 
and not too much long later, I got um, I got offered to help ink one of the Transformers movie tie-in comics, and then that led to me um, doing some fill-in art on that. And then the next thing I knew, I was doing like my own pages on um, like a short story that tied into Aha Megatron, and then it led into me doing um, my first you know series of my own, which was Foundation, which uh, John Barber wrote. And then I, I drew and that's kind of where it started. And it just kind of went from there. Amazing. And it's, it's a lot of Transformers uh, body of work. Do you know how, how many issues it's totaled up to? I don't. I, I, I sometimes think I should stop and count it up. But um, so I did a few issues of like the tie-in comics, like, I don't know, inking and filling pages and stuff. And then I did four issues of Foundation. And then they were starting a new ongoing and they liked what John and I were doing together. So they invited me onto that. And that was like, I was the main artist for like 55 issues before they relaunched it, but I didn't do all the issues. So, you know, there were a good amount of filling issues and things. And I did some of like dark Cybertron and stuff in the meantime, and a few things here and there. So I I really don't know. And then I did like the Bumblebee um, movie prequel comic and I did different things here and there, filling issues and things. So I really, I don't know. It's got to be maybe like a hundred <laughs> or close to it. Wow! You must. It's it's like you. You must be like the uh, the SL Galant equivalent of GI Joe in terms of that body of work. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, there are people who've done a lot more than me, like um, Alex Milne and um, other people like that 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 have been around at least as long as myself, if not longer, because he's like he's he specifically has been there since the Dreamwave days in the two thousands. So. Um, and then he did more than meets the eye while I was doing RID and he's, he's done a few crossovers and things since then. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm, I'm the top place, but it'd be interesting to see how many issues each artist has done. That's for sure. Is it, uh, I, I, I hesitate to ask this question cause I think it's a dumb question, but having, but <laughs> having drawn, uh, as as a ninth grader, having drawn Transformers fan comics, and then more recently drawing drawn comics of my own with humans, do you prefer drawing something like Transformers with giant alien robots or GI Joe, something with six foot tall anatomical humans? I prefer I prefer the humans. Actually, it's it's less time consuming. You need less reference because, like like I tell people, a lot of times. You know, every human has basically the same anatomy. I mean, some people might be thinner or heavier or shorter or, you know, or have weight at different places in their bodies and things. But, like, everybody has the same basic, like, skeletal and muscular system. And you can kind of, you know, have the same starting point for every person. But with Transformers, it's like if somebody turns into a car with wheels hanging off of them, that's entirely different than somebody who's got, like, jet parts or, or um, a tank parts or something. It's like so every transformer has a different like you got you have to look up so much reference and they each have their own kind of anatomy sort of and a lot of like using a straight roller and stuff so um it, it's a lot more time consuming and i i find people i don't know like they can be challenging in their own way and it's hard too because a lot of times i kind of want to go faster but then it looks kind of rushed so I, I have to force myself to take more time and and, and uh and focus on the subtleties because like a lot of the tricky part with drawing humans is the the folds and the the, the the contours and things that aren't quite angular and you know you have to be kind of subtle and use some hatching and stuff to get the form right but like so it, it there there are certain subtleties to humans that are harder too so but then i've been drawing humans and things for a, a while now and like i just kind of went back to 
I'm working on some Transformers projects at the moment, and it is kind of nice to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I know how to, I know how to do this. I can slide back into this pretty easily. I've I've sometimes thought when reading Transformers comics that the person who's drawing Spider-Man is at an advantage because you can draw Spider-Man uh, sort of over the shoulder. We can just see a little bit of the sort of rear three-quarter back of his head and his shoulder, and you know who it is and where you are. Sure. But if you're drawing like Roadbuster, right, from like bo- over the shoulder behind yeah. his ear, not even 80% of Transformers fans may not know sort of who who were wh- who, where the camera is and who it's uh, overlooking, right? Like Optimus Prime, I know that shoulder. I know that head. Right. Well, that's the other thing too is like... Uh... I get kind of self-conscious about fans. I'm I'm always afraid fans are going to say, "Oh, that's not exactly right," or that little that little chunk of metal there should be a quarter inch over to the left, or or it shouldn't be there, or whatever. That that's too much <laughs> kibble, or whatever. So yeah, that that's always in the back of my mind too. So I take extra time to try to make sure that they're drawn accurately. <laughs> do you uh, do you have training in in art or in comics? Well, yeah, in art, I went to uh, my college um or university days were spent doing um you know art I, I i had a concentration in studio arts but then i focused on graphic design um because you know i thought that would be a more reliable work path and it was for a while but um yeah so i took like you know figure drawing and and traditional painting classes and printmaking and all of that kind of stuff and um yeah so i i have a, a an arts degree cool and and I guess in terms of bringing this back to to GI Joe, a lot of creators come to, you know, GI Joe as as you know fans and having been you know fan of the property in their youth, and some people come to it you know knowing, you know, a little less about it. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot particularly a lot of Americans of of kind of our gen- generation, couldn't help but avoid GI Joe being in their their life in terms of the popularity of the comics, the toys. Uh, and the and the car cartoon, uh, so so yeah. Where, how did where did uh, uh, GI Joe place in in the life of a a, a young uh, Andrew Lee Griffith? It was pretty pivotal actually. Um, when I was young, um, you know, I I was of the age where like I was born around the time that uh, Star Wars came out. So I I grew up. Um, my older brother had you know a lot of the Star Wars toys, the little three point seven five inch right, yeah, um, figures. So I, you know, I, I was starting to get them for Christmas gifts and birthday gifts and things. And then on my sixth birthday, I guess I'm aging myself here, but um, I, I, <laughs> I, I got as a gift. Well, I had seen them at stores, and I was pretty excited about like when GI Joe first came out, and I'd go to the local department store that had a big toy section, and they had on the end in America, I guess we call them key, uh, end caps. I don't know what you might call them in the UK, but um, you know, at the end there's like a display where at the time they would have toys out of the package behind like this plastic thing where they'd have them set up Uh incorrectly set up, of course, but like, you know, these little battle (laughs) scenes set up and it was snake guys and the Mobat and Scarlet and all the figures and stuff. And I was entranced by that. And then I I just, um, something about, I don't know, because there were other like military toys that were similar at the time, like cheap plastic army figures and stuff. But there was just something about these GI Joe toys that kind of got my attention and enthralled me. So my parents knew that. And on my birthday, I got, um, on my sixth birthday, I got Snake Eyes, the Mobat, and um, the MMS system with Hawk, and I was just kind of hooked hooked from there. And um, that was, you know, obviously a couple of years before Transformers. And um, my cousins 
my old my cousins were a little bit older than me and they started getting the comics so when i'd go over their house i'd read some of the early issues <clears throat> and i think my first issue was oh was it where did they go i forget if they went they read they ran into the October Guard, and there was the um, uh, the um, all-terrain big vehicle they were carrying that, um, like something explosive. I'm trying to remember the de- details of the issue, but they were kind of um, was it Trushwa yeah. Absinia? That was like issue nine, seven. Or eight that or that nine? was really early on, right? Like yeah, like six or something like that. But yeah, that was I think the first the first GI Joe issue that either I remember reading all the way through or owning myself. I'm trying to remember, but yeah, that was um, a, a big issue for me that kind of got me hooked on the comics. And then, no, I'm sorry, I never owned that one because the first one I owned was like my, my brother and I went to the store and he got Transformers issue one and I got GI Joe like 24, 25. So up until that point, I had read other people, uh-huh. other people's comics, and I finally bought my first GI Joe comic. It was like when they were in the swamps with Zartan and um, yeah, and Storm and um, Storm Shadow was being taken to Alcatraz with Roadblock and stuff. And um, that was when I finally got into the comics. But I, I had, of course, been hooked on the cartoon and that would come on. And I believe at the time it was in the mornings before I'd go to school. But yeah, so I was like pretty much hooked from the start and I started collecting the toys. And um, I actually collected G.I. Joe toys like up through the early 90s, like after I had stopped with Transformers because I, I had a paper route pretty much uh-huh. just so I could afford to make some of my own money delivering paper, newspapers. That was a thing kids at the time that um, was existed newspapers. Um, so, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, um, I had money to pretty much go out to the Toys R Us or the department store and whenever, you know, my parents would take me and I'd, I'd buy like pretty much all the G.I. Joe toys I wanted. So I had, I had a pretty big collection and I, 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 I guess I still do. Nice. So I was in it from the start and um, I, I, I was pretty much raised on Larry Hama's G.I. Joe comics. <laughs> Excellent. And, and you've, you've held on to your collection then and, and has it, has it made its way to, to Peru? No, um, <clears throat> I, I have a, uh, a house in the U S I'm, you know, I'm from the U S uh, and so I have a house there and, have it up in the attic so whenever i uh-huh. settle back there i'm anxious to kind of like dig it out and you know maybe see what i have and set some stuff up in my office especially especially now that i've officially worked on the brand more excellent and so so how far what did you did you sort of keep on following the the, the brand did you sort of try and stay abreast as as it kind of evolved over the years with the kind of the you know, Devil's Jew era and then IDW getting the license and the sort of the, the 20th, 5th anniversary kind of line of, of toys and all, you know, all of these different iterations or, or did you kind of, for the most part, leave leave it there when, uh, you know, once once you stopped your paper route? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know, like I graduated high school and of course, you know, you, you, you get into dating and like you go off to college and I was, like I said, I was going to school for art and I was I got kind of snobby about it. I kind of was closeted about my geekery. So I, I didn't like collect comics and stuff for a while, but then I got a job. I got a job in the early two thousands working at like a large graphic design house where there were like at least a hundred other graphic designers there. We were designing advertisements for all across the country and the world and stuff as part of a big corporation, but there were a lot of artists working there. So people would have, you know, transformers sitting on their, on their desk shelves and GI Joe toys and, that was around the time that Dreamwave came out with Transformers, and it was it was huge. I mean, I remember being on um, 
South Street in Philadelphia, where I was living at the time, and like you'd see big posters of like the Pat Lee Optimus Prime, and and this is like a bohemian, like artsy, you know, nightlife area, and um, it was a, it was a huge thing at the time. So we all went out, and, you know, bought the Transformers comic, and then that led to like He Man and GI Joe getting revitalized and stuff like that. So I did read a bit of the Devil's Due GI Joe, um, but I didn't. I don't know. I got back into comics and stuff, but I don't remember the Devil's do one clicking with me that much. I read some of the crossovers with Transformers and stuff that they mm-hmm. did. And then um, once IDW got the license and I was really like at that point, cause I was working on Transformers and stuff and I was really back into comics and getting inspired and stuff. So when they got the license, I picked up their GI Joe run pretty much immediately and kind of read, read it from the start. But I always had, you know, always had an affection for it. Andrew, if you have followed the IDW G.I. Joe comics and you read the comics in the 80s and uh, and that Larry Hama work meant something to you, how did it take you so long to draw an issue for IDW written by Larry Hama? <laughs> well, I guess you'd have to ask the editors. I, I, I bugged them for a long time. Um, I did do like a cover or two over the years. Um, um Maybe more. I don't. I don't remember exactly how many, but I did like a Snake Eyes cover when they relaunched GI Joe back when they were doing like the Revolution thing. I think it was. I did like a cover for the first issue right, and things. Yeah. And um, there are a few things I did like for Hasbro behind the scenes here and there, toy designs and stuff. I don't remember if I did GI Joe specifically, but I did like. They, there are all kinds of things that get like tested out just in sketch form and stuff, and they take to meetings and they're like, "We need a quick sketch of like." this G.I. Joe Transformers crossover or like a His Tank Transforming, or, you know, little random things probably here and there that I did, but nothing that ever came to fruition. And I don't know if I can even show it, but like, um, so that's a lot of the Hasbro stuff I did every year, over the years was I'd get an email and they'd be like, can you sketch this out by tomorrow morning so I can take it into this meeting and it might never go anywhere, but (laughs) I need, I need something to show. So, um, you know, but, but I never really did so you so, saw so you did a version of the Baroness and Ravage. That was for a commission. That was a commission. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like I, I bug, I would bug the other editors now and then. Um, I don't know if part of it was the fact that I was busy with Transformers and I was, you know, in, committed to an ongoing series for a few years there. But um, part of it might be timing. You know, part of it might be there. Like um, Shannon or S. L. Gallant. You know, he he was such a consistent artist for such a long time that they didn't really need somebody on the real American hero book. So mm-hmm. I think part of it might be timing. Part of it might be, you know, cause it's, editors get so many different artists writing them. Say, hey, do you have anything? And coming up to, to them at conventions and you have to be the right person at the right time. And um, I don't know, finally last year, like during the pandemic, um, like when everything was locked down, I was doing a lot more commissions for people and mailing them out. And for some reason, I just started getting more G.I. Joe commissions. And um, Tom hmm. Waltz, the editor, was like, hey, these you know, these are looking really good. And I was like, well, I'd still love to do G.I. Joe sometime. And then, my, what was I on? I was working on something last year, and it ended. And I just put out some feelers to different editors and some different companies and stuff. And I was like, hey, I'm looking you know, for work and trying to figure out what's next. And I got an email from Tom. He's like, hey, would you like to do a five-issue run on G.I. Joe, you know, Real American Hero featuring a new character and all this stuff. And I'm like, um, yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was, yeah, I was, I was super happy to get that work. 
Um, but as far as like why it didn't, why it took so long, I really don't know the behind the scenes answer. <laughs> I, the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly needling you with the phrasing of that question. Uh, but I, I under, I understand <laughs> the phenomenon of right person, right time and editors sometimes having their pick. Um, so, uh, of those five issues in that five part story, you took a break for the third chapter and the fifth issue of your run got pushed to this one we're talking about today. Was that a scheduling thing that you didn't draw the third issue of Murder by Assassination? No, I was originally supposed to do the full first uh, five issues, but, um, you know, and this is not at all to like call out Larry in any way. I love the guy and I love his work, but like he was being a little slow with some of the scripts. So like I'd have an issue done and then I'd have to wait a few weeks until I got the next story instead of just jumping right into the next one. And it got to a point where things had fallen behind, you know, and um, just just how it was, you know, like I said, I'm not calling anybody out or anything, but like it just got to a point where in order to keep the book on schedule, I had to start, you know, the fourth chapter and they had uh, Shannon fill in on the third issue just so they could both be going at the same time to keep things going on track. And then they just pushed me back to a, um, a standalone issue. So that's all it was. It was just um, things were got, got falling a, a bit behind and, um, you know, that's just how they managed to keep things um, on schedule. Ordinarily, when a when a uh, an announced artist on a an arc um, doesn't do all the issues, I'd be disappointed. But that Shannon already had such a body of GI Joe work that that issue was different, and that he did such a good job uh, made that as a reader actually fun and like not an interruption. So I don't ask that sure, question I... from a from a place of criticism or disappointment. And it looked great too. Like I mean, that was some of my favorite work of his. I've I've, I've seen him do like, um, and we were in communication a good bit about that um, off and on. Like, unfortunately, like I had started on the next issue and um, like some of his, like the designs for his characters were different than I expected to use. Like, for example, I had, I had drawn Chuckles on a cover and I was picturing kind of more like a Daniel Craig kind of short hair, kind of like undercover <laughs> guy. And like he drew him as like, like, a, like Owen Wilson or something, you know, and like, with longish hair yeah. and so like i had to kind of go back and um redo how i was drawing him and stuff like that and um so there's a little bit but like once we finally got talking we, we we got talking a good bit and sharing art back and forth and things and like he kind of inspired me i was like wow man your stuff's looking so good i i, I feel a little intimidated i gotta step it up on the next couple issues so um <laughs> but that was just it like those issues were on such a tight deadline. I pretty much had to do like each issue within, you know, 30 days. And then, which I did pretty well keeping up with, but then, you know, I did, I would just, I'd be a little ahead of Larry and then I'd have to wait on the story a bit. So, um, unfortunately mm -hmm. I couldn't keep, keep ahead. So it kind of started to fall behind a little bit. So that was all. I mean, we speculated at the time that potentially you had a bit more time for the, the very first issue of the, the arc, um, just because of the, the the level of polish and the detail and all of those big it, those big action scenes in the in the desert with all of those different vehicles and stuff it looked like it, it had a lot of time spent on it to 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 do that uh you know would, would that be a, f a fair assessment that you had a bit longer for that particular issue yeah yeah i had a little more lead time on that one and um yeah for sure because that there's a lot of detail on that with like the um we've got a bit of lag so so 
just keep keep on going if we're talking. <laughs> Andrew, worry. can you talk about your process? Because when I look at your art, I think I'm seeing only pencils that have been darkened in Photoshop. I don't think I'm seeing inks or if I'm seeing inks, like just some some inking on outlines. Uh, no, definitely not. Everything's everything's inked. Yeah. Um. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I stand. I, 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 I hope- yeah, no, I, 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 everything was was hand inked. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what gives that impression. Maybe because I don't know. Maybe I ink too much like a penciler. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I stand corrected. I think I have seen the occasional line. I think I see the occasional line which looks like a pencil line that hasn't been fully erased. So, like in in the new issue in two eighty six, uh, it's, uh, it's like page six or so where. Uh, Tommy's holding the tray of food and he's looking back at Snake Eyes and he says, I don't need anybody fighting my battles for me. And there's a there's a very thin light line next to his head that to me looks like uh and I mean I like I like the look of pencils darkened and then colored directly in comics. So this is also not a criticism. Cause I I like I like sort of seeing the artist's hand. Um I don't need my comics art to be like 100% crisp and clean, although there are plenty of artists who do that that I like. Um, but uh, I, I stand corrected. All right, this is all inked. No, um, like I, there, there is for sure that. I know when I scan things in a lot of times, like I'll try to do my best to get rid of any stray pencil marks that are still there. But um, there have been times for sure where like I'll look at it on a different monitor screen or something with a different brightness or a different calibration. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that that was not showing up on my desktop screen. <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty sure, but like I'll, I'll notice those things later. So yeah, sometimes stray pencil marks do do make it through, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's just those are just mistakes that because you know like it's hard once you've got the inks and you you still have pencil marks showing and you want to erase them. You don't want to like erase off rub off the inking and things. So sometimes um, it's still kind of faintly there, and you have to go into Photoshop and like work with the levels and the contrast a bit. Um, but yeah, I do miss that some stuff sometimes. So that's just honest mistakes. And, and what's your, what's your general kind of approach and techniques and, and the, the tools and in, in particular, I guess one of, uh, one of the things maybe to, to talk about is around sort of that your inking approach. Cause we, we noticed that you, you tend to ink with quite a, a fine line, quite a lot of detail legs. Our guess was maybe, you know, small, you know, thin micron pens or that, that kind of thing. And and while you're discussing that uh, as as well, you know you're you're a, a penciler who's inking inking your, your, yourself, which is obviously a, a slower process than than just sort of pencils and then handing it off to to um, an inker. What was the you know what's your thought process about wanting to to you know do the do your own inks? Well, um, I don't really think of myself as like an inker, but like uh, IDW tends to like people who can pencil and ink their own stuff, which you know, it, it, it's it's always a thing of like, to me, like, I always feel like every paint I do, I'm like, I can do that better. But you have to find the balance of like, quality versus time, because, you know, you have to get a whole issue done penciling anything, you can only spend so much time on, on a page. So it's like, how much time can I put into this and have it be presentable enough that it's good that you know, that it's going to look good and hold up, but also not spend too much time. So, you know, you have to find the balance of how much time you can put into each page. Um, so I, I start out with pencils. I like to use a 
Um, I have like a, I think it's pronounced Stadler mechanical pencil for like a drafting pencil because I, I like I can keep a nice sharp point, uh -huh. sharp point with it. And I, I like to do my layouts like right on the page. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't. So lately I've actually started doing like on smaller pages with like some pencils and markers and stuff. And I've been kind of transitioning into that more, but I always like to swing it right on the page, getting right into it. And then I go over it with, you know, tighter, tighter lines and things. And a lot of times um, I'll skip like a lot of the fine details in the penciling stage and just do it on the inks. Um, you know, so if there's like something that has a vent with like a lot of parallel lines, mm -hmm. I might just do all of those with, with the inks, um, trees and things. I might put in the details with the leaves just on the inks and the shadows and stuff I'll, I'll leave just to save time because it's so, you know, it, it's time's precious when you're penciling and inking. So, um, so yeah, a lot of that stuff I'll do in the inking stage. And I use, I used to use the micron pens a lot, but, um, I, I kind of prefer now Copic, uh, I used their markers for a long time and I got into using <clears throat> their multi-liner pens, which are like the similar equivalent to the microns, but the nibs and the ink are all refillable and replaceable. So, um, I can just keep using the same housing or whatever for the, for the pen. They're very similar, but I like the quality of them. I like the um, consistency of the ink and stuff. Um, so I, I've been using those for the last five or six years, ever since, boy, I'm trying to think like about eh, after dark Cybertron, if you're familiar with the Transformers issue, somewhere around there, I switched to these. So yeah, that, that's what I do. And then I, I draw everything by hand. I scan it in. I do very little manipulation digitally, except for like, like I said, contrast, I clean up the borders and the edges and things, but um, I, I do very little art digitally. Um, every once in a while, I have to fix something, but I, I like to keep it traditional. Um, a lot of people like to buy the original art and stuff, and I like how it looks all inked and complete. I don't know. I, 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 so that's kind of my process in a nutshell. Can you talk about what reference you were provided for this issue 286 sure so um larry actually is really good at providing um reference every time i start an issue they've uploaded folders with like um the specific guns that people are using in the issue the you know what what the bivouacs or little campsites will look like like in vietnam and things and um like even uh what the um like different types of uniforms for the medics or the you know the 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 lrp guys and stuff and it's amazing like he'll have five pictures he'll upload of um you know a certain helicopter and stuff and so he provides a lot of reference like mostly you know photos you can find online and things but um it's really helpful and then he also sent along some sketches that he had done i don't know if these were older sketches or sketches he did for this issue but they um they were used, I think, as um, a variant cover, at least one of them were for this issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, he sent me a couple of those. Um, I didn't know whether I could share them with you or not. I don't know if those are supposed to be public, the other ones he sent me, or if they want to use them for covers in the future or anything, because a lot of times they'll do that, you know, with his sketches. So, yeah, it was a lot of that. And then, of course, I used issues 26, 27, and 44 or 43 of the original run the ones where they showed the flashbacks originally um, for that time period in Vietnam and stuff. So yeah, I used a lot of those as reference too. Yeah. So it was a combination of what he had sent me, what I, my own personal research online and then um, old issues. But this issue was surprisingly challenging in that regard. Cause I did do a lot of 
research just I wanted to get it right. You know, I wanted to be faithful to mm. what it would actually have looked like. And, you know, I know Larry has a lot of personal history with, with that. So I, I didn't want to like do it any injustice. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time like making sure I had uniforms, right. And details of the helicopters and everything and the, the machine, machine guns and things like, I just wanted to make sure everything was as authentic as it could be. We've talked about how this comic more than a lot of other comics is a challenge for its artists in terms of reference because Joes and Cobras have so many specific costumes and then the vehicles are all hard to draw and weird fictionalized things. And then, you know, you get an issue that's like not dependent upon like a Cobra hiss tank. And it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's like 1968 and there are all these very specific guns and uniforms and like small huts that need to be accurate. Um, for sure harder if anything because you can't just go onto yojo.com and find the the figure you've got this is like military uh history reference and yeah. you know people are getting the you know, certain people are going to be having a laser eye for accuracy on this aren't they for sure um yeah because it's not you know because a lot of joe fans are fans of military history and stuff and it, you know they they know, they know that stuff better than i do so or have, yeah, or have served themselves. Yeah, better, you know, and um, and then there's a whole level of fandom that, you know, people like to see things the way they expect to see it, you know, at least I know I do. And I, I can be kind of particular too when I read comics and I'm like, oh, that doesn't look right or that, you know, that's not how it should look. And I, I always point <laughs> out those things myself. So I, I can't, you know, I can't judge that, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I like to do my best to make it look how it should look. So uh, yeah, Larry writes in this you know particular plot style, the the, the Marvel method mm-hmm. style. How how did you get on on with that generally? And did this issue uh, feel any different to the the, the previous four that you you'd drawn? Because it's obviously a very personal story. So did did that you know uh, did that come across in in the in the writing as well? It did kind of feel different. It, it felt more challenging. It felt more like. For some reason, this issue took me the longest. I kept having to ask them to extend the deadline. I mean, like, it was one of those things where I started out, and they're like, you know, if, if we push you back to a spotlight issue, we have these different spotlights coming up. Is there any particular character you'd want to work on? And I was like, man, I'd love to do, like, a Storm Shadow issue. Imagining, I was imagining, like, ninja stuff, maybe something that tied into, like, I don't know, if it would have been up to me originally, I would have, I would have pitched, like, an idea where, like, I would, I would I'd always love to see more of, the silent interlude issue and like how Scarlet got captured and stuff. And if that's, ha- if that has been covered in another issue, I may have missed it somewhere, but um, I haven't read every single issue ever throughout the years. But um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I really would love to have done some old school, like storm shadow snake eyes stuff. But then when they sent me the script or the plot and it was like totally different than I was picturing, I was like, Oh wow. This, it kind of threw me. I was like, Okay, yeah, this is this is cool too, because like those issues that told the backstory of Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and all those, um, you know, Stalker and everybody and, and Nam and stuff were like to me very influential, very like impactful stories of the '80s and um, kind of took GI Joe from being this like I don't know franchise comic into something more um, serious and more um, you know inspired and like just felt more mm-hmm. authentic. Yeah. And it really kind of gave it so much more depth. And I, I loved, I, I just love that old stuff with um, Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes and Zartan and Softmaster and all that kind of stuff. The, those issues 
man, I love those issues with like the subway and the fight on the subway and all that stuff. They raised the elevated train. <laughs> The, yeah. the, the elevated train cover with him getting yeah. kicked out of it was is still like one of my favorite comic covers ever. Just so much detail and like having the confidence to use the figure so small in the, on the cover and have the composition work where like, because, you know, the tendency is, is always like if you draw characters small on the cover, it feels like they're not going to be impactful enough, you know, but like it just works so well with the composition and the detail and mm -hmm. everything. I, I love that cover. But um, anyway, so yeah, when I got the script, you know, I was like, okay, this is different than I expected. But then, you know, when I read it and realized how much Larry was putting into it from his own personal thing, I'm like, it was, and having so much history of those backstories where it was like, yeah, this is really an honor to work on this. So I really wanted to try to get it as right as I could, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't there at that time period. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't in Vietnam or anything. So like, I, all I can do is my best to research it and everything. Um, and now I forget the original question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Marvel method. Oh, yeah, sure. So once the plot came in, you know, um, you were asking if that issue felt different than the other issues, right? So that's kind of what led me down that path. But yeah, so yeah, it did feel a bit different than the other issues in that it felt more personal and more tied into the older G.I. Joe stuff that I grew up loving. Um, but as far as the Marvel method, like, I love working that way. John and I, John Barber and I worked on that way, uh, on Transformers that way for like, I don't know, I think after Dark Cybertron, we kind of took the characters to earth. I think he started doing the Marvel kind of method plot way there. So I'm kind of used to that. I kind of prefer that. It, get, it certainly gives me more freedom, more room, more room to, you know, make storytelling choices and stuff. And that's one of the reasons I like working in comics is that I like the storytelling aspect. So, so yeah, that, that, that's been a great way to work. I, I, I love working on that way. Excellent. And, and talking story, what um, what was kind of you, you know the bulk of your work was on on this murder by assassination arc. What was your kind of your your first inklings as to what that overall story might be, and and sort of was the original pitch of the the story very different to to, her, to how it turned turned out? And you know specifically, we've kind of speculated on the fact that that we didn't really in the end have a a murder by assassination other than the death of the the senator in the in, in the capital mm -hmm. i don't know the first email i got from tom was like basically okay so this this is going to be a plot that's going to be kind of like larry's you know the closest prior larry will get to like a murder mystery kind of a storyline and it's going to focus on a new a new character named sherlock who um i guess tom had pitched to him i, I think he said it was based on someone he had yeah. served with or something mm -hmm. so so yeah so like um uh, it, yeah, it started with that, and it's not too different. I mean, it was never um, expected to be like a large scale. Like, I, it was going to be, you know, different from like the, uh, Snake was Snake Hunt. You know, it, was, it wasn't going to be like hundreds of characters. Thank God, it wasn't going to be like hundreds of characters to draw and hundreds of vehicles to draw and stuff. <laughs> um, so originally, it was going to start with like her origin story and then be more of like a kind of a lower key story with like a murder mystery kind of thing with a limited amount of characters. So, yeah, I mean, that was, there was a part of me that like, I want to be drawing rattlers and his tanks and trouble bubbles and stuff, you know, but like, but then I, you know, I got into the story, but so, so it was cool by, um, by the time 285 came around, I could draw like a stinger and some of the more, uh, the bats and stuff. So like, it, it was, it was fun to get a, a, an element of that too, of the classic characters, more of the, uh -huh the classic uh -huh. characters that I always loved and stuff and getting, I did get to draw, you know, Mindbender and, and, and Cobra Commander and, and Duke and all that. So that was some of my favorite stuff in the, um, 
in that one issue where it would cut back to the basis because i you know how can you not love drawing like the classic <laughs> um posing cobra commander with his fist in the air and stuff um so yeah i mean it was a nice mix of like drawing like the the authentic like military stuff and um i i, I talked a lot to a friend of mine who um, he did a couple tours in iraq in the mid 2000s so he he was he was a great reference um when I didn't have time to like wait on a response from Larry, I could just message him and be like, Hey, what does this specific radio look like? Or, you know, is this how the inside of a Hummer would have looked or what, what would, how would the base have been laid out and stuff? Um, so, so he was good with a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, it was good to have a, a close friend that I could um, go to for, for reference and stuff. But um, inside of a Hummer on deadline, I think you just ink it all black. Yeah, there was a good bit of that. Oh, for sure. Oh a yeah, lot of for, for sure. Yeah, there was a lot of shadow on the inside and stuff, but um, it was nice when he read the issue, he sent me a message. He's like, wow, that took me back to like riding around the desert and the inside of a Hummer is like, I feel I feel like I'm back back there. <laughs> I was like, that was a compliment. Yeah. Andrew, your comment about wanting to draw uh, more established characters and vehicles, I hear you. I, I open up an issue and I, I want to see Stingers and, and Dr. Mindbender. Um, and and the, the sort of counter to that is you know, if it's all the established stuff or flashbacks, we're not uh, as like fans and as the creators building or getting like new mythology. And uh, and this comic is this oh, really sure. unusual beast, which is that it's a nostalgia property. And unlike the 80s and 90s, there aren't new characters and toys that are being handed over from Hasbro that have to be inserted. And so mm-hmm. Larry and company like do have the freedom to not uh, introduce new characters and uh, uh, Mark and I and and I think a lot of fans have really enjoyed these new characters all that said I loved 286 I found it really powerful and I think you are fortunate and in kind of a rarefied air now in that you have drawn not just a good issue of G.I. Joe but one of these um, infrequent mythology issues like we know more about some of these favorite characters because of, you know, 2021, 20, 26, 27, 144, and others, and now 286. And this is an issue I could hand to a lapsed fan and say, why aren't you reading G.I. Joe? Oh, that, that's, mm, yeah. that's great to hear. It means a lot. I mean, yeah, my, my, old brother, my older brother kind of pointed that out to me. Like I said earlier, he was into this stuff too when I was young. And, um, he was like, oh, he's like, it's, he's like, you realize how cool it is that you're getting to like work on an issue that ties into such a, you know, legendary mythos of this comic from the eighties and stuff. And it's, it's just such a long history. I'm like, yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I was, I, I hadn't acknowledged that a little bit in my head, but, but when, when other people pointed out, it really kind of, it, it brings it home, you know? So, so yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I feel really lucky to have gotten to work on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not even a three-page scene, right? Panel two. Yeah, it's a whole issue. Yep. Panel two on is- on page one. I'm thinking, oh man, this is going to be a whole issue of this. Right. Yeah, because like <laughs> characters like like Ramon and stuff had shown up for a few panels here and there and gotten killed and things. And yeah. like it's like, but you finally get to flesh them out a bit, you know, and see how they interact with with um you know with with tommy and snake guys on the base and things and what the dynamic is like and puts a bit more flesh on the bone and see who who else they lost that you hadn't seen before and things so yeah for sure yeah um, this issue also served as a nice um 
counterpoint, not to take anything away from the G.I. Joe movie that was released this summer, um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, since that went in such a different direction, uh, I think I sort of passively wondered if the comic might not do any more Vietnam flashbacks, um, and here we get an entire issue of one, uh, which is very much about these two characters who were in that movie that that we saw this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for another reason, this this issue had a special resonance. Like, oh yeah, we can still go back there. Yes. No, I was just going to say the same thing. I always have the fear of like when um, comics feel too um, too too indebted to like the movies and like the, they they have to change everything to follow the movies, you know, and stuff, and they have to stop. I don't know. I don't like when they like spit out the old continuity just because even if it doesn't make sense in that same comic book to, to do what the movie is doing. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad that, yeah, they, they tied it back to the original continuity and, and I, that adds a lot more depth and everything in my opinion. There were two, two, two sort of two great points made there that, that specifically these flashbacks before have been, you know, such high points in the, in the story, but we've have only seen them as, sort of the odd panels here and there. So just to, to have an entire issue devoted to this era and really fleshing, fleshing it out and giving it room to breathe just feels uh, uh, great and a, and a real treat. But but also Tim's point, the fact uh, that, that if we've got um, any lapsed G.I. Joe uh, readers out there who aren't reading the, the, the current... Um, uh, the current issues, but, you know, do have that enormous nostalgia for, for the likes of issue 20, 26, um, you know, hand them, hand them this issue and it's, uh, and, and let, let them know what they're missing out on. It's a great advert for, for what IDW. Now there doing. is a, a, uh, there's one thing about this issue and, uh, and Andrew, it does not involve your contribution. There's one thing about this issue, which makes it a little harder to hand to a lapsed fan which I will get to after uh, Mark does uh, his plot breakdown. Period. I'm going to end that sentence right there. Okay. Well done. Well done, Tim. Um, I, I was I was just going to loop back to a point that um, that that you were kind of mentioning before about how um, you know how it's nice to work on the the classic the classic characters, but there were some you know brand new characters created uh, you know in in that last murder by assassination arc you know at almost staggering rate given the the age of this property um we had in particular i'd, I'd single out um al calbra sherlock and, and also the the new uh overkill character um introduced you know with a you know a great deal of mystery be- behind him maybe maybe andrew if you can talk us through sort of some of the creation process for these these new new characters and 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 also, you know, how, how as a artist following the scripts as they're given to you, what were your own speculations on the the mystery of Al Calbra? Did you think that he might be an established Cobra character? And how did you feel about the reveal when it came? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, like I said, I knew from the start that um, uh, one of the main new characters was going to be uh, Sherlock and everything. So Larry had sent a sketch of what she looked like in her like um, regular military MP fatigues. But that wasn't going to be how she would, you know, be seen going forward. He wanted more of like a, um, you know, undercover, plain clothes kind of detective kind of a look. So I got to design that, which was really great. I mean, it's really cool to design a character and have Larry approve it and say, "Oh, that looks great," you know. So started from there. That was kind of like the starting point, and then um, 
so going forward i'm trying to think of what character were there any other new characters in 281 Calbra. oh yeah of course yeah so yeah um yeah larry gave like a general description of what he pictured him looking like looking like with the whole you know head wrapping and um i believe yeah i believe he did point out that he'd be wearing aviator glasses to hide his eyes and stuff and then he said he'd have like um bandoliers of, of grenades around him and stuff and I think I was pretty much able to run with the rest of it and figure out how we look in my mind. You know, I didn't know who he was supposed to be. I don't know if I think Larry's kind of hedging a bit and like waiting to see who he, who he, I don't know when he decided who he was going to be, you know? So in my mind, I was kind of hoping it would end up being major blood. Cause like, um, I'd like, I'd like to see him make his <laughs> way back and like, cause I always wanted to draw him. Cause like, I always liked him as a villain. Cause he was kind of like goofy and threatening at the same time, especially like sometimes like, he's been portrayed in comics as being like really like ruthless and like, um, like kind of almost scary, you know, but then in the old cartoons, he was always yeah. so like goofy and almost like the, uh, I don't know, <laughs> like, like, the, like, 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 I don't know, like the kid brother to like Destro and Baroness or something that they pick on and like toss aside, um, in the old comics <laughs> and stuff, you know, but like, there's something about him. I just always liked, like his, his, his look as like, he almost felt like a, a star Wars bounty hunter or something like with this, robot arm and his I don't know armor and stuff but um but so I was kind of hoping it would be him and I, I didn't know who it was going to be so yeah so got to I, let me see got to introduce him in that issue and then 282 you know it wasn't clear who who the bad guys were of course it was like a um, Fred series guy and then it was the guy all in the it, that was very specifically um Alari you know description he was like in a fedora with a trench coat and everything and you you know be very like vague about you know who he was and then of course james was the one who decided to color them all like i think he's like a dark gray kind of look but no that was that was a great issue too because i got to draw some of the classic characters at the senate hearing and everything so that was great because like you know of course i i love do a hawk and stalker and all those characters so um scarlet and everything um Trying to think, and then two eighty three. Of course, there were a number of new characters, but that was all Shannon. Um, he he designed them and introduced them. Yep. So I just kind of ran with that. And then by the time we got to two eighty, did two eighty four? Two eighty four. I don't think had anyone new. Did they? It had a lot of like street thugs and things that Larry would call out, like you know, wanted to be authentic to the area, what like you know, organized crime guys would look like and how they dress and everything. So he provided a lot of reference photos for those guys, um, that his, his, his henchmen and stuff. And then in 285, I'm trying to think. Yeah, so like um, Overkill, that was a little interesting because in the script, it just in the plot, it just said Overkill. It just said Overkill does this, Overkill does that. I'm like, well, which version of Overkill is this? I'm like, he hasn't really appeared in IDW, has he? So yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we we went back and forth a lot, and um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Diana Davis. She's the like the research assistant on these books. Yep, big friend of the show. Oh, good, good, because I don't know if she gets enough credit because um, she was always very hands on, messaging me all the time. Do you need anything? Like, do you need to look anything up? If I'd be like, when's the last time this character appeared, or um, you know, ha has this character appeared before? She'd be like, oh wow, even I have to do some research, and she'd go back and like dig through old issues and get me images and things. So she was great. So I was asking her about Overkill and she's like, well, me personally, she's like, I like this version or there was this version, but she's like, I don't think Larry liked that version. So 
we came to this point where I'm like, well, what if I just kind of come up with an original design, kind of like taking influence from different versions that have appeared. And I, I did up a sketch and colored it and stuff. And I sent it off to, um, to them. And Larry's like, yeah, that looks great. And like I said earlier about Sherlock, you know, I was like, that's a great feeling to have an, mm -hmm. a chance to introduce a new character and have Larry like give it his full seal of approval. So yeah, that was pretty much just the story with Overkill. Just at first, I was like, wow, what, what's he, what's, what should he look like? So it was a little bit of back and forth for a while until we got to a point where um, I just did a new design and he, he approved it. And then as far as, um, as the reveal, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it kind of made sense. I wasn't expecting like some stereotypical Middle Eastern guy, you know, to be underneath there. Uh, I figured it was going to be some recognizable face or established face. And I think, I think, a Fred series kind of makes sense because there's room there where it could be a number of different, you know, Freds over, over the history, or it could be a new one. And I don't remember, did, did the end of the issue specifically say if it was a specific one? It's a Fred. A Fred. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have two reactions to your uh, answer to the previous set of questions. Uh, one that you uh, got to come up with a new take on overkill uh, the, 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 that statement and then the issue as published, right? The statement that launched a thousand cosplays, right? And, and, and action figure customs. I can't wait to see in a month, in a year, in five years, photos of people at conventions dressed up as that version of Overkill. And then number two, Tom Waltz and Megan Brown, editors at IDW, if you're listening, Andrew Lee Griffith really wants to draw a major blood story. So if that could be a, a, a spotlight issue or maybe a backup <laughs> in our like quadruple sized issue 300 next year, or I'm hoping there's going to be a quadruple sized um, March 2022 40th anniversary issue. Maybe we can uh, turn issue uh, that month's issue into uh, like four issues the way that uh, uh, who did that? A Gen 13 turned its 13th issue into three separate issues, and uh, and Dark Horse Presents turned its turned its 100th issue into four or five separate issues. So, um, Andrew Lee Griffith really wants to draw a major blood story. <laughs> there we go. Mic drop. Get that. Yep, yep, yep. That's, that's appreciated. Actually, I don't think Megan's on GI Joe anymore. I think she moved over just the other day to a new young original comics line i think i'm not sure i'm not sure if she's still on joe I've, I've been meaning to ask that i can i can rephrase this and i can say hey talking joe listeners it's time to start up a short email addressed to letters at idwpublishing.com subject line gi joe dear tom waltz i would love to see andrew lee griffith <laughs> draw an entire major blood uh, spotlight issue. However, if it's a backup in one of next year's um, oversized anniversary issues, that would also be great. Sincerely, Joe Fan in Spokane. <laughs> <laughs> or if anybody, if anybody, <clears throat> excuse me, if anybody is, you know, is a fan of what I've done on these books and wants to let IDW know, please always feel free. And of course, if you didn't like it, you're 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 welcome to use <laughs> your free speech too. But you know. It, Either way, but um, I'd love to do more work. So if you want to see me on more stuff, you know, just let them know. And and in the letter page, Tom writes, many thanks to artist Andrew Lee Griffith, who signs off his art duties brackets for now with what I consider his best issue yet. 
So the for now does sound does sound optimistic. Well, there, you know, you can't say anything's definite, but there's been at least one thing that he's he's you know talked to me about doing that I'm I'm really excited to do if it works out next year as part of the 40th anniversary. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed. You know, Andrew, say no more. If if you're going to do a three issue miniseries for the 40th anniversary, <laughs> written by Larry Hama, showing your version of Overkill losing parts of his body and becoming the fully robotic version of Overkill, even though that's probably not Larry Hama's favorite version of that character, I will also buy that and read it. I will also talk about that on a future episode of this show. I accept that <laughs> responsibility. And listeners, send those emails to letters at idwpublishing.com. See, I want to see that story too. You know, or, <laughs> or I mean, I don't know. Like, it wasn't I'm trying to remember. Major Blood was killed off, right? Or, or I'm trying to remember where he was last seen. Um, as long as a while back, right? There was a there was an issue. I'm I've no idea what the number is, but there was an issue where he was on the cover with Lady J in a blindfold, and uh, and it was chuckles went on a bit of a John Wick mission to kind of take him down i think he escaped i that might have been the last time that we saw him in current chronology i was gonna say maybe overkill could be like a rebuilt major blood who survived some injuries and (laughs) (laughs) And we we did see major blood um in a flashback recently around set around issue 33 yeah 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 i was was thinking in terms of chronology yes. of the the right. last time in the in the current chronology that, yes. we, had, that we that we saw um i you know the same way that uh the same way that this issue 286 um added some backstory you know like how did major bloods uh get his robot hand how did he get that eye patch right yeah his spotlight yep. issue yep. could be a flashback or it could be him doing something interesting with joes or cobras or third party mercenaries nowadays i'll buy all of them idw <laughs> you know I, I should correct something i said earlier by the way i was saying that when um when they started showing the flashback stories with 26 and 27 and stuff about how that made it feel like a more serious book you know that of course there were stories before that like of course silent interlude and um and, and a lot of great issues and great art before that so it wasn't as if those were the first issues but but you know what I mean? Like th- those put more meat on the bone of those characters and things. And um, yeah, and, and, yeah. So it wasn't as if the book wasn't already fundamental. Yeah. Sorry, those two issues leveled up the book. Yeah, yeah. And and I, you know, I, you you can you can look at other. I mean, part one of the reasons why I like to proselytize about GI Joe comics to uh, people is that I think a lot of people assume that GI Joe was sort of as good as Marvel's Star Wars, Marvel's Transformers, um, Marvel's He-Man, uh, Marvel's Dino Riders, and... Marvel's Crystal uh, Warriors? What was it, Crystal Warriors or something? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and like, everyone, those are all fun comics. G.I. Joe is an excellent and transcendent licensed book, right? It's, it's not just, like, better than you think it's going to be. It's excellent, and it was one of their highest selling books in the eighties. You know, if when you look at sales charts from back then, it's like G.I. Joe was selling like as much as the X-Men or more, you know, it was, yeah. if I remember right, and Spider-Man and stuff, it was up there. It was one of their top books. It had the benefit of being advertised on television and oh man, would the writers yes. of all the other Marvel books have, have appreciated <laughs> that. It's, it's, it's almost unfair. 
and those great little animated commercials, you know, with the with the tie-ins of the comics and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had one one last generic question before we get into into the detail of two eighty eighty six. Uh, which was uh, just around your approach to to the the covers, and you know there was quite a lot of iconic kind of type shots there. We we had Sherlock in front of the Humvee on two eighty one. We had Sherlock and Chuckle sort of looking around a corner, you know, in the, the Capitol. We had uh, an all girl lineup, uh, and then I think your final cover was that iconic shot of uh, the team um, with the with the flag kind of background. What was what was your approach to kind of the the covers? And I'm guessing they were done in advance of necessarily knowing what was in the in the issue themselves, which was why you you had to keep it slightly more as a as a kind of iconic uh, lineup for for some of those. Those were, and it was very similar. Like when I first started, um, way back when I started on the Transformers ongoing, um, and I didn't have any scripts yet, and I had free time and they're like well why don't you do some covers i'm like well what are the covers like going to be of if we don't script they're like well here's like a rough outline of the story so i would just kind of pitch different covers and they'd say okay go with this one or go with that one and um they more or less fit in with the story um that john had planned out so it was very much the same with this you know they sent me like a rough idea what the story was going to be about and the different characters that larry wanted to use throughout it so i I pitched a, a number of different cover ideas I know the first one, that was Tom's idea. He sent me an image of like a female MP in her, you know, military uniform and stuff in front of a Humvee. He's like, he's like, I was kind of, you know, it'd be cool to have a cover kind of like this where, you know, Sherlock's looking cool and like in her traditional army uniform in front of a Humvee. And then um, he's like, maybe you could throw in a couple other characters. And I'm like, he he said that Hawk and Stalker would probably be in the first issue. So I, I added them in. So that was pretty much what that first, you know, cover was just based on Tom's idea. And then, um, what was it? Well, I'm sorry. What was, what was the 282 cover? Was that the one with, um, uh, uh, Sherlock and, um, that was Chuckles? Sh- uh, Sherlock and Chuckles with, yeah, yeah, okay. um, yep. Helix in, in the background. Well, they're like, yeah, it's going to be like, a, um, they're like, it's going to be a, you know, like kind of like a murder mystery kind of a thing. And they're like, he's like, so Tom was like, how about like a, you know, like a um, Sherlock Holmes kind of movie kind of movie poster kind of a thing. So, you know, we sent back and forth different some different movie posters and things. And I kind of took some um, cues from that with like uh, he had mentioned that Helix would probably be in it. Chuckles would probably be in it at some point. So it just felt kind of just kind of felt like it worked to have them on some undercover mission in like a city. I'm like, well, what you know, what city could I place it in? Cause we were looking at like a Sherlock Holmes movie poster in Paris and there was a character in the background kind of walking kind of like helixes in that one. So um, he said, well, it's going to be set in DC. So it made sense to put the Capitol building in the back and then I mean, wait, the Washington monument, I guess. So yeah, it just kind of came together. It was inspired by like um, movie posters and things. And then um, as far as the all female one, it just kind of felt like, you know, it's like, I was thinking there really aren't, it feels like there are, but there really aren't that many female characters in GI Joe. And, um, you know, there's a new one added to the ranks and like, I don't know, I just, that'd be cool to see them all together and see her fitting in amongst the rest of these classic characters. And, um, so that was kind of the genesis of that. It wasn't meant to be literal to what was in the issue. And then the same thing with like them all jumping out of the tomahawk was, um, he had mentioned, he's like, at some point we'll probably have, you know, snake eyes and stalker and Hawk and Scarlet in it. 
And I'm like, oh, those are some of my favorite characters. And I'm like, what if I do, just do like an action shot of them jumping out of a tomahawk? tomahawk? And um, so I drew that. And then a few people had pointed out that like there are some similarities to another classic cover of them jumping out of a tomahawk. And I'm like, that could have been like a subliminal subconscious thing in my mind. But I, I definitely wasn't trying to homage that. If I was, it would have been more literal, more direct. You know, I would have, I would have definitely made it more of a direct homage but that could have been in the back of my mind. And then, um, so for 285, that cover, um, it was kind of funny because Tom was like, I don't remember if it actually did, but at the time it was originally planned to come out around July 4th. So he's like, he's like, you know, maybe you can do like a, like a patriotic kind of classic group GI Joe shot. So like 285 is really inspired by this old, like Michael Golden, you know, covers some specific ones, like that one yearbook cover and stuff that, um, just a classic shot of some of my favorite characters and i i asked james to like look at certain old images of group shots and group shots of like vehicles and things to try to get like that the color tone to look kind of like those older covers so that was kind of the inspiration for 285 with with duke and roadblock with the flag and everything yes they were pretty much just kind of like pitched a couple different ideas roughly knowing where the story was going to go and trying to keep them kind of vague and kind of you know, just kind of classic shots. And um, that's kind of what, that was the genesis of the covers. Excellent. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. So we can move on into the detail of uh, 286. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Okay, so we are talking 286, released 22nd of September 2021, The Distant Future. Um, Writer, Larry Hammer. Artist, Andrew Lee Griffith. Colours, Jay Brown. Letters, Neil Utaki. Senior editor, Tom Waltz. Editor, Megan Brown. Research specialist, Diana Davis. Sit rep, a soldier for his country, later a covert operative for Cobra, then an elite fighter for G.I. Joe, but always an Arashikage ninja first and foremost. He's Tommy Arashikage, and this is Spotlight Storm Shadow. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Um, So before we go into the interiors, uh, we'll have a quick look at the covers. We've got... Cover one, art by Freddie Williams. The second, colours by Jeremy Caldwell with uh, Snake Eyes in a a first of a connecting cover series, very much influenced by the opening sequence to G.I. Joe the movie. Cover B is uh, art by Alex Sanchez with colours by Cullen Davis. Uh, Storm Shadow doing a high-flying kick. And cover R1 is a sketch by uh, Larry Hammer of the uh, LLRP, which looks to be dated probably 2010, possibly 2016. Uh, the O isn't quite closed, so hard to tell for sure. Thoughts on these covers, guys? So um, it's it's great to have Freddie Williams II back doing a bunch of interlocking covers. Originally, it was five different covers uh, that were announced. And you can, in fact, buy the original art right now on Freddie Williams II's website (laughs) for those other uh, five for for 286 through. uh, 
through uh, through 290. Um, so uh, uh, Mark Mark and I were sort of musing earlier today why uh, the announced uh, interlocking Freddie Williams II covers were replaced by a different set. Um, uh, I, I I love G.I. Joe the movie. I love the opening sequence. Um, I don't love crossing over uh, sort of imagery from the animated series to the comic book because they are so separate and because um, you know, Larry Hama did not write for the show, and the people who wrote for the show have not written the comics. So this um, big Cobra airship that we see silhouetted uh, by the full moon on this cover A of issue 286, um, and then this battle over the um, uh, Statue of Liberty, initially I think, oh cool, it's that thing from G.I. Joe the movie that's the best G.I. Joe animation ever. And then I think, uh, well, but like, that airship isn't in this issue. Snake Eyes isn't in costume in this issue. This is not a battle at the Statue of Liberty. Um, and so I feel like there's a disconnect. And then the disconnect continues because um, cover B is this uh, cool image of Storm Shadow uh, in his white uh, costume. And of course, this whole issue is a flashback and we don't see Storm Shadow in his sort of Cobra uniform either. And... Uh, the last five issues, which had five connecting covers by Freddie Williams II, those were the B covers. And I feel like this B cover with Storm Shadow should be the A cover because it's a Storm Shadow spotlight issue. It's not an issue about Snake Eyes defending the Statue of Liberty and beating up some trouble bubbles. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then um, uh, congratulations to uh, Cullen Davis on coloring his second G.I. Joe cover. And then um, if I can correct something tiny that Mark just said, it's it's R-I, not R-1, because it stands for Retailer Incentive. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, but you can keep hosting the show. Um, so here's this amazing Larry Hama sketch from six or 11 years ago, not sure, of the LERP group. And this should have been the cover. This should have been a cover. Yeah. And uh, they should have uh, rotated this 90 degrees and like Marvel does for a lot of their uh, uh, collections, soft covers and hard covers, when they have a wraparound cover and they turn it into just a front cover, they shrink it to 30%. There's a giant black above and below space for the logo. Uh, doesn't doesn't grab your attention quite as much, but I would have taken this precise Larry Hama sketch, darkened the pencils uh, in Photoshop, handed them off to a colorist who like would color everything just the characters in the water, not even the sky, with like 25% saturation. Like, don't overwhelm this with loud, intense colors. And, uh, or hand this image to someone else to like ink. Um, but I mean, like, like I, I want to hand this issue to people because it's a great issue and it scratches an itch that I didn't know I had. And it, like I said before, connects to some other favorite and famous issues. And yet, if I hand cover, like, I own a comic book store, and I'm always happy every month to put the new issue of G.I. Joe on our new comics rack. And I had a couple copies of A and B on our new rack. And, like, this isn't, A and B are not the covers to sell this issue. Like, here, okay, here's, here's the cover that this issue really wants. It wants Storm Shadow in his white ninja costume, like, his head and shoulders big, like up on the top left or top right with space for the logo. And then in the bottom two thirds of the cover, sort of the scene that Larry drew where we see Storm mm -hmm. Shadow in flashback with these other guys 
in their Vietnam gear. Like, but in, in full color, like a montage cover. Like, oh, come on, come on. This issue was so great. And it totally <laughs> dropped the ball in terms of art direction for the cover. And if you're sort of scratching your head, I'll just rattle off five quick things. Like, what's a better cover for this issue? Uh, G.I. Joe, what is it, 38? Uh, what's a better cover for this issue? Uh, the nom number two, the nom number 11, the nom number 13. You know, like a, a comic book, I, I get it. It has to sell the comic and like collectors want A and B. And if there's a connecting thing, they'll get excited and they'll come back the next four months and get more. And like, yes, yeah, Snake Eyes is in the issue and something important happens involving Snake Eyes. But like, oh man, what a missed opportunity to match the intensity, the content, the feeling of the interior with the cover. Oh, well, uh, covers to the side. Um, let's have a look at the interiors and a quick summary from me with the plot breakdown. Stalker recounts to Scarlet over the time that the long-range recon patrol beta team of Snake Eyes, Wade Collins, Dickie Saperstein and Ramon Escobado met Storm Shadow back in Vietnam. The team encountered Storm Shadow, a.k.a. Fresno, a.k.a. Tommy Shiburo Arishikage, a.k.a. Tommy, as Alpha Team have flown in with four of the team KIA and the Sergeant wounded. Tommy is the only man left standing from the team. Bravo Team volunteered to take care of the team with dignity. Snake Eyes' first interaction with Tommy is to intervene and serve up his food in the mess tent. As the only remaining member of the Alpha Squad, Tommy joins Bravo Squad. Snake Eyes is silent with the rest of the squad and somewhat antisocial, but Tommy makes an effort to reach out to him and they would go off to talk for hours, seemingly. And after giving his team the silent treatment, Snake Eyes shocks them by speaking with advice to Ramon on writing home to his mother. Don't lie to her, just don't tell her the truth. Later on a routine patrol, the LLRP are crossing a stream when their sergeant, Sergeant Lipton, is shot. Snake Eyes is in the middle of the stream returning fire, firing three belts of ammo to provide cover for his team. Later, Stalker arrives at the base camp as Bravo team returns to see Lipton carried off the medevac chopper by Bravo. The next day, he takes over as team leader. So let's uh, get into it. What an amazing issue. It's such a good issue. <laughs> it's very good. What struck me, sort of, you know, putting that plot breakdown together is how much of a character and mood piece this is, rather than necessarily one that's driven by lots and lots of plots. You know, often there'll be, in, in the typical G.I. Joe issue, there'll be, you know, an action sequence, characters getting from A to B, yada, yada, yada. This, this is very much... Um, you know exactly what happens I think is less significant in, in, in than the tone the, the the feel that is being created spending time with these characters you know filling in some of the the the, the holes get, getting to to know them essentially something that G.I. Joe is about is uh, loyalty sticking up for your buddies sometimes that's everyone at the bottom. Sometimes that's uh, someone in authority breaking the rules and sticking up for their subordinates. And this issue is very much about, uh, in, in several different places, 
right? Like supporting your team, uh, supporting your buddies. And the, the most, the, the, the strongest example of that is uh, offloading corpses from uh, mm. uh, Huey after it comes back from a mission. And the scene plays out sort of one and a half times. And, you know, similarly, this is, this is such a small moment, but Tommy goes to the mess hall and the uh, cook uh, wants to toss him out because he's got blood on him having just returned from a mission. Snake Eyes goes in there and stares down the cook and then grabs the, the spoon or the ladle and puts some food on Tommy's tray. Uh, I think we could also... I think we could also maybe read a, 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 a subtext in there, which is that Tommy's Japanese, right? He's Asian. Here are all these Americans in Vietnam fighting all these Vietnamese and maybe mm. hating all these Asian people who are sort of in this war, both with them and against them. And so even though Tommy's not Vietnamese and he's not the enemy, I think we could read uh, a, a racial and racist uh, undertone to this scene but it's it's very much right the sub the the context of it not the subtext is like don't come into my mess hall looking looking all bloody smelling like a mess but you know even even the soldier who's back from a terrible mission deserves more respect than that and um you know this issue actually reminded me of uh we've mentioned a lot of issues that this issue feels like or ties in with and we haven't mentioned 155 this issue feels like 155 yeah, I mean, we there, there's been just flash flashbacks, um, and and generally, as we've we've mentioned, they've been pretty small glimpses at, at a time. That we've had twenty six, forty three, ninety four, one hundred and fifty five, uh, and and even more recently, two hundred and forty six returning um, to to the to the LERP, uh, era. Um, but but this is this is a dedicated full issue and, and sort of unlike those those others where it's been small glimpses filling in these gaps in this in the story it's it's um you know a complete you know extended sequence in in itself this issue also i, I mentioned the nom before when i was talking about covers um and i mean this as a compliment uh this issue feels like an issue of the nom so in 87 uh, at Jim Shooter's suggestion, Larry Hama, with his with his editor's hat on, right? We sometimes forget Larry was an editor at Marvel. That was his day job. And G.I. Joe was his freelance night job uh, writing G.I. Joe. Larry put together Doug Murray and Michael Golden, writer and artist, to roll out this monthly comic that would move in real time, right? Each issue was a month later, and in, in the story, the story had progressed a month later. So after 12 or 13 issues, the protagonist goes home because his tour's over. Um, and that's a great Marvel series. Over the years, the edit editorial changed, uh, and sort of the rules of the book changed, and the Punisher showed up. And I like those issues, but it does, it does distract a little bit. And so much of that series, partly because... Hama was the editor for the first two or so years, question mark, um, is this, um, it, it's code approved, right? It's not an R-rated comic. It's comics code approved, but it's regular guys doing this terrible work, getting the shaft, uh, sticking up for each other. And then, you know, of course, overlapping iconography here, right? It's the same equipment. It's the same uniform. It's the same backgrounds and locations, 
and uh, you get some of the nuts and bolts of, you know, like things break or uh, this piece of equipment is overheating and I have to do something about it. So just as this issue reminded me of some other issues at G.I. Joe, it also, you know, it, not even page two at the inside front cover, I thought, oh, I think this is going to be like an issue of the NOM. That's one of my favorite Marvel series. So that was a mental thumbs up. Larry actually pointed that out in the plot. He said, you know, this is, you know, like, think of the NOM, you know, think of that comic as, a, as an influence on this. You know, he, he, um, he specifically pointed that out. So it was, it was, it was, it's, it's good that you recognize that, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good thing. Cause it was never explicitly referenced. I don't think in, in, in this comic, but, but it was definitely a, a, a touchstone or an influence. Something that Hama has said recently in one or two interviews, and I think this was actually in the context of the new movie where we've moved away from the military stuff in general and the Vietnam sort of as a flashback because that timeline doesn't work anymore. Um, Hama has said, uh, you know, like even regarding the comic, it sort of gets harder and harder uh, to do those flashbacks because... Um, if you think too hard about what year it is and the time that's passed, it sort of breaks down. And I think we're all willing to forget, you know, like I watch, you know, The Simpsons like every week for 25 years and it's like Bart's still in third grade or whatever. Like it, I understand how this works. And um, uh, I also have to imagine that as writer, um, Hama sort of asks himself, well, do I want to tell a new story with established characters and move the the overall narrative ahead? Or do I want to do um, a flashback, which might feel like um, sort of something safer, right? Is that less of a challenge? Because like, like, clearly all the readers are going to gobble up like some flashback with the original Snake Eyes because, you know, we all have these strong feelings about the death of Snake Eyes and the two characters who have uh, sort of taken that role. Um, and so uh, I have to assume that Hama as writer wants to challenge himself um, and sort of goes back and forth between, it's like, well, how much of this should be a flashback to sort of a story that takes place between issue one and issue now, or a flashback that takes place before issue one, or a story that takes place right now, and it's something that you know had never uh, happened before. And um, uh, that said, I don't think that writing this issue or this kind of issue is actually any easier. It may just sort of feel comfortable, familiar, uh, and safe. Sure. Yeah. I don't know, like, what his um, inspiration was or in, in choosing to write this as a form of a flashback. I just remember them saying, well, you know, if we're doing spotlight issues, is there any character you'd like to work on? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do a Storm Shadow thing. And they said, well, that's great because Larry has an idea for a Storm Shadow story. Hmm. Um, I didn't know at the time it was going to be a, a flashback. But I guess this might have been one that's been kicking around for a, for a while and, and sort of just it could well you know, be. kind of forming in his his mind. It, they it, In the back of the, the, the uh, in, in Tom Waltz's note in the back of the book, he described it as a personal that, that for Larry it was personal and often times tough tale to write and, and share and and reading it it does it does feel like it it's about kind of written with a real sense of truth and, and I would suspect that you know it's very much 
Larry's story that, you know, potentially some of these sequences um, and, and the characters in, involved are inspired by, you know, events that, that you know, he he actually experienced him, himself during his, his time in, in Vietnam. And it would be, you know, interesting to find out you know, which, which nuggets that, you know, are, are purely fictional and which have got this, this grain from uh, his real life experience. Yeah. It feels very personal. You know, I was, you know, I was curious myself about that. Yes. You know? But even, even the word balloon, that's, that's uh, biographical about uh, storm shadow. That's not about combat. My mom was born and raised in Sacramento, but my dad came over from Japan. He died when I was 10. That is at least partially autobiographical. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I was very curious about that my, uh, as well uh, myself. And I was kind of surprised, actually, that they um, explicitly said it was Vietnam. Um, I don't know. I haven't read the final published book, but in the PDF I got, it was um, it definitely said Vietnam because in the plot it said um, it, it wanted to leave it. It seemed like it wanted to leave it vague. I think it said like a a far Easter or, um, you know, jungle country or something, you know, like something similar to like Vietnam. Cause I thought they were trying to get away from, you know, like the Marvel has that problem with like Iron Man being, you know, originally from Vietnam era. And then, then it got changed to Afghanistan and stuff. So like, I, I was under the impression they wanted to leave it vague, but, um, yeah. So I was just a little surprised when they explicitly said it was Vietnam. Yeah. Page one, panel three box vietnam you know it's uh it's there's no doubt yeah. there. <laughs> so yeah oh well at the same time um yes the continuity the timeline is is plastic but if you needed this to not be like 1968 or 1972 if you needed this to be like 15 years before the current events of you know gi joe happening right now i mean you know we <laughs> The military still does conduct missions in in lots of places, so I think there's a little bit of cover. Exactly. Yeah. If that word Vietnam in a in a caption is sort of too much of a pinpoint. Right. Plus, the the world of like this this GI Joe continuity continuity takes place in a different world where they've had different you know military um, battles and wars that we haven't had, and vice versa. You know, so like there could be some more recent um, you know war taking place in Vietnam anyway. So. Yeah, it's 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 kind of comic book, you know, logic, and I think it's easy enough logic, to, yeah. <laughs> to to look look past it. Um, what what was interesting from a plot point of view as well is that, you know this is this is sort of labelled up as a, a storm shadow uh, spotlight, but but you know as much as that, it's it's also um, snake eyes, and as a, and we're shown as as much as we ever have of of his time in in the in that era, and you know clearly he's being established as a st- strong silent man of mystery with a with a rep and, and um you know us really i think it, it being pointed towards the fact that you know to the extent that he was a silent man even back in those days prior to him having his uh his accident um and and right man of silent action <laughs> Exactly, uh, and to, to the extent that his uh, his teammates are, are shocked by by actually hearing hearing him interject with um, you know, some some words of wisdom around writing that that letter letter home, and it's um, I I, I, I hadn't even sort of clocked this in, until I until I looked on you know, some of the message board discussion around the this issue, and this is 
actually Snake Eyes's first line of dialogue as written by Larry Hammer, uh, other than the t- the one time that he said um, Scarlet back in issue uh, 102. So, so yeah, here we go. It's um, Snake Eyes's first, uh, let's call it sentence, his first line of dialogue so, uh, in a, in a G.I. Joe I book. think there's something worth... Yeah, that's a big moment. Uh, yes, I was, when I turned the page and saw that it was, I turned the page, I'm looking on the left page, but my eye naturally goes to the right page and I, I see the guy with sunglasses and he's got two word balloons. And in my brain, I screamed, holy, and then the S word, um... And then I thought, wait, wait, calm down. Get to that panel naturally. Read the left page, then read the right page. Um, And I was already enjoying the issue. So I think there are a couple things that we all know, or we all know in the back of our mind, that it's worth saying aloud. So Snake Eyes in modern, I don't mean when he's dead, after issue 215, whatever it was. I mean, Snake Eyes in G.I. Joe, right? There There are sort of rules, right? He's in black. We don't see his face. He doesn't talk. He's scarred. Um, he doesn't talk because he can't talk. Before the accident that scarred him and robbed him of his voice, he could talk. In all the flashbacks, both in Vietnam and also uh, in all the flashbacks, um, when he could talk, there's this sort of rule in the Larry Hama G.I. Joe comic, which is that he doesn't. It's not that he can't. And it's not like sort of in the first live action movie, like the, the, the first live action movie sort of like implied that he'd taken a vow of silence or something, right? It's like, oh, he doesn't, he doesn't talk. Um, so in these flashbacks, this guy can talk, but he doesn't, right? And that, that, is, that is sort of a reverse echo of the rules for the character. Similarly, his face isn't scarred but we're not going to see his face. He's wearing sunglasses, his face is in shadow, where he's wearing that hat. And this is all like a playful reinforcing, you know, it's like if you draw young Bruce Wayne before he ever becomes Batman and you have like a cast shadow behind him, you like make the shadow shaped like <laughs> Batman, right? Like that's a fun thing you can do with, with visualizing a character just as in sort of creating these quote rules for Snake Eyes, Hama can reinforce the character um, with things that we sort of already know that logically haven't happened yet. Um, So when he does speak, it is shocking and, uh, and powerful. And then that he says something that is so powerful, right? It's not like he's, it's not like um, in the mess hall, he like grabs the ladle from the, the cook who's being a jerk to Storm Shadow. And he says, give him his food. He's earned it. Like, that'd be a good line, too. But, like, that scene didn't need to be the, like, first time in 100 issues that Snake Eyes, 150 issues that Snake Eyes has said anything. And uh, I also think there's there's something going on with Snake Eyes not talking um, in that, you know, like, in, in reading stories set in Vietnam... Uh, you know, movies, TV, and also comics like The Nam and others, um, there, there is an idea that, you know, like you don't make friends because your friend may get injured or die and it's too hard to deal with that, right? So you just stick to yourself or you don't let people in to your sort of real life or your home life because 
you just want to like get through your 12 months in Vietnam and go home, right? So like, yeah, they, they know that he's writing to his sister, but he doesn't talk to them. Um, and then lastly, this, this doesn't have any like special meaning. This is just an observation. Um, I've never thought of Snake Eyes as one of the big Joes. Rock and Roll is a big Joe. Salvo is a big Joe. Uh, Roadblock is a big Joe. But uh, here, you know, it's like, oh, Snake Eyes has the M60. Oh, he must be one of the, one of the, one of the bigger Joes. Yeah, that kind of surprised me too when I saw that in the plot um, that he was ha handling like the heavy machine gun, you know. Um, but I, I, it wasn't how I had thought of him, uh, what his role would have been, you know. But I guess that was meant to be like how he evolved over time into being more of like the the more I don't know subtle warrior, if you'd say, with, like with the quieter weaponry and the, um, the 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 quiet but deadly kind of kind of kind of character. I guess it was meant to you know imply that he had evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Did um, was it clear what how um, Tommy um, switched with the bow and the arrow? Um, because um, you know the fact that his gun jammed was meant to imply that that's why he went to start relying more on the bow and the arrow. So, like when he first shows up, he's wearing the bow and the arrow. I mean, the the, the quiver and the and the bow and everything. Because I'm like, well, he'd have to have it with him if he switches to it later. Because Larry had said, you know. He shouldn't be carrying it at first, but then I'm like, well, uh -huh. where does, does it come from if he doesn't arrive to the base originally with it? So like, I hope that all worked out well. Yes, it, it did. Clear. Yes, it it is. Okay, good. And that's a nice that's a nice sort of logical character and story bit of juggling there. That that this prop, uh, both as a thing that we would or wouldn't see, and then also as a as a bit of um, character deliberation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's the kind of stuff you got. You got. You have to think through. You know, it's like because I don't know. Because when he first arrived, he didn't mention anything about um, what he had with him. But um, later on, I actually like I had to change one panel where I, I had originally drawn it when they're on patrol. He he wouldn't have had it then because he was using his gun. Because he's he specifically said he wasn't using his bow and arrow yet. But I'm like, but then later on, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, should I switch it when he arrives? But then I'm like, no, he have to bring it with him so he'd have it later wouldn't he? <laughs> so um because i mean because i imagine it wouldn't be like some standard issue thing it would be something that he would have brought with him from his uh, his family's um you know business quote unquote <laughs> um, so i don't know i would think so I, anyway i'm just glad that that works and it was clear that um because that was a plot point larry wanted to point out that you know the, the reason he and the other flashbacks when he's using the bow and the arrow so silently and stuff, that that's why he relied on that so much is because his, his gun had jammed before. And I imagine if you're in the middle of a firefight and your gun jams, it's, that's got to be. Ah, it was fascinating in reading this issue to realize two-thirds of the way through that Stalker is narrating the tale and yet he hadn't shown up in the flashback yet. And then I thought, oh, this other guy who we haven't known before is going to have to exit the story so Stalker can join the team. And then I turn the page mm. and this guy exits the story. And then Stalker says on the final page, in the final panel, uh, that then um, he uh, joined the team. I also thought um, there was a really nice resonance in this story where the first two panels and... Not the last panel, but it, in my mind, the last panel flashes forward again to Fort Wadsworth with Stalker and Scarlet, you know, on Staten Island in New York. Um, but um, 
you know, the, the, the first two panels of this whole comic could have taken place anywhere. They could have taken place in the pit. They could have taken place uh, in Springfield, mopping up from, you know, one of the recent missions. It could have taken place uh, just at any restaurant in any small town. And uh, Larry recently posted to Facebook uh, his cover sketch for that issue. Mark, I'm sure you can remind us since I don't remember the number. But it's it's the it's the Larry sketch variant cover where it's Snake Eyes and Scarlet on the Staten Island ferry, uh-huh. and Larry on Facebook said um, something like "My favorite cover" or "My favorite cover sketch," and um, you know Larry, Larry Hama's a New Yorker, and uh, that the Joe base is originally in New York is is probably a part of that and. So for, for Stalker and Scarlet to have this exchange at Fort Wadsworth, right, like, like adds a little emotional weight to it that um, a lot of other locations uh, wouldn't have felt as like inherently G.I. Joe and wouldn't have felt as sort of um, localized to these characters. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was a really... Good choice. And ironically, I actually drove past Fort Wadsworth like the day after I drew that page. So <laughs> that one thing that made one that was kind of it was kind of neat. I was like, hey, look at that. Because I, was, I um, ironically, I was traveling while working on this issue. So um, visiting my mom and stuff. So like I drew most of this issue on my mom's guest room, sitting on a bed on a big clipboard um, instead of my normal big drawing table setup. So um, so anyway, so that kind of added to this being on like a tight deadline is like, I only had, there were certain days where I was going to be traveling and I couldn't, but I flew into JFK. So I drove, um, through Staten Island, but, um, it was just kind of funny. I was like, Hey, look at that Fort Wadsworth. (laughs) I sometimes play the game when I read modern issues of GI Joe, right? IDW comics these days are 20 pages and the Marvel run of GI Joe, all the issues were 22 pages, right? The economics of comics, right? Printing is expensive. Mm-hmm. And I uh, sometimes when I get to the end of a modern comic that's only 20 pages, I'm aware that it feels a little shorter than a comic I would have read 15 years ago. And sometimes I'll think, oh, I wonder uh, what the writer and artist might have done if they'd had one more page or two more pages. What scene in the story might have breathed a little bit more? Or in some cases, is it sort of told just as well? Like it's not like it was too short or too rushed. It was just a different rhythm and a different take. Um, and uh, I was because I liked those first two panels at Fort Wadsworth when I got to the final panel and Stalker's narration sort of caps the story in my mind I'm sort of picturing him and Scarlet still in the vamp at that uh, gate or maybe now they've like parked and they're going inside and so had there been one more page I sort of pretended that um, they've gotten out of the vamp and it's like sunset or something like he's told this whole story over the last couple of hours. They got to Fort Wadsworth when she asked the question. He tells the story, and then we can have this, you know, dramatic visual. Um, but it is also this is not a, like a little book. Yeah, this is also not a criticism. I think I think the story works sort of in every way, and and I do like the final panel because you know we're we're focusing on the guy that Stalker is, um, is is replacing, and so this you know it's it's a Storm Shadow spotlight issue. But it's also a Snake Eyes spotlight issue. But it's Stalker story. But Scarlet is the inciting event or character because she asks the question. Right. And there's this ab- abruptness to the, that final 
panel as, as well. It's a relatively small panel sort of capping off the the story and it's um you know there's the 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 dead former sergeant being taken out of the of the helicopter and 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 stalker concluding the next day i took over as new team leader and it's sort of that abruptness and almost arbitrariness of yep this is what happens the you know the sergeant dies you guy gets swapped in um that's the that's the way of life for these these poor guys in this in in this environment um in 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 vietnam well, that was, the two things is like, I did think that um, that was a good place to end it. And it was, it was really kind of, um, you know, uh, highlights that what happened, you know, he's getting taken off and he, he didn't make it. So, cause it, um, I thought that was a good place to end it, but I, I did think it also kind of echoed in 281 when Sherlock gets taken away um, with the helicopter, with the lighting and everything, when the helicopter comes in there with him on it. Um, but what I was going to say is funny is I remember, when I was working on Transformers on the ongoing, I think around issue 20 or so is when IDW, they changed from 22 pages to 20 pages. And um, I remember like it made deadlines so much easier to meet. Um, so in, in, one, in one hand, it was nice. But on the other hand, there are always a few issues now and then where it's like, it, it would be nice to have a, just a little more space to tell the story, you know, just to highlight something at the end or to add something even in the middle and extend it out a little bit. But like, it would be nice sometimes to have those extra two pages, but other times it's just nice because you can get the issue done easier on time. <laughs> the, other, the other thing that occurred to me sort of reading this is, is you know, these characters have, have lived in our, you know, memories and minds for a little while since being introduced for the you know first time, time in those early issues like 26 and 43, um, but it's sort of really give, giving them a lip, you know, fleshing them out much more and and um so one of the characters and they're all very distinct so so we kind of um you know know them as about more them more than perhaps some of the the you know core gi joe team by by this point so we've obviously stalker storm shadow um uh snake eyes we we know well we now we also know an awful lot about wade collins and then sort of the remaining two uh, Dickie uh, Substein and um, and Ram- Ramon as well, sort of very distinct characters, and and Dickie particularly, I felt was fleshed out here that um, you know he's clearly a, a German Jew, so there's lots of German language and also reference to his his Jewish culture. Uh, the Substein name is is a compound of the Hebrew uh, saf- sapphire, so meaning sapphire, and German Stein, meaning stone. Um, he wears an iron cross on his hat, which struck me as an, an interesting touch and, and possibly a conflicted touch because you know it's often that that specifically is a um, a, a sharpshooter insignia, I believe. Um, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, I had to look that up. That was a specific. Um, I believe that was a sharpshooter insignia. I don't want to get the terminology wrong, but I believe that's what that was. So that yeah, that didn't have any other kind of um <laughs> in, 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 i can't think of the word i'm sorry but yeah that didn't have any extra meaning or anything yeah because it looked like a german iron cross and i thought with a with that yeah i just want to be clear that it wasn't anything like that yeah 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 okay with yeah with the german with the the short jewish background that that might and a jewish german background that might might make for a conflicted uh slightly conflicted character but uh but perhaps uh that yeah as you say there's there's a, a different meaning that, that i hadn't picked up on someone with more military knowledge than me might know better but i believe it was a sharpshooter insignia i believe um or, or um badge um uh-huh 
the the other the other little nuance that I picked up around Dicky was that um he's he's sort of told told off uh when they're making writing their letters at some some point they they say to him save that for when you're a short uh a short timer and and ironically when we see him in the next in you know in in the these sequence of events um you know before he he dies at this point it's a, it must be a little while on and at that point they in this is in issue 155 when when they're showing the flashbacks they do describe him as a short timer they say Dickie Saperstein was a short timer too. He had less than two months to go before he rotated home. His letter was from his mum. Dickie's dad was in the hospital and needed an operation. They didn't have the bucks. Uncle Sugar was offering a cash re-up bonus back then. You sign up for a burst of four and Sam gave you the down payment on a brand new Camaro or a heart valve dilation in this case. Dickie was kind of burnt out by then. He had the dreads before every mission. Uh, he puked his guts out, but he did his job. We knew he would never let the team down. So Dickie signed up, got his bonus, and, and extended his tour. His dad died on the operating table. Um, so, so yeah, sort of establishing a slightly different dynamic that, that they're much earlier on in their military careers here versus the, the final time that they're on that fateful fateful mission when they uh, Ramon and Dickie uh, uh, are, are killed. Yeah, and the ambush in, was it 43? Yes, uh, I was just gonna say it reminds me a bit of my my um my great uncle. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have stories like this in their families, but he he served in World War II and um, in the Battle of the Bulge, he he died um, from uh, like he was trying to take out a machine gun emplacement or something, um, and I believe it was. And then like my uncle has this letter where he had sent it like a week before he died, like sending home to his wife and stuff. Like I can't wait to um you know to meet the new baby and all this kind of stuff mm. it just really hits home you know the the unexpected sacrifice and like how people expect to be coming home and don't and it's yes yeah, the tragedy of it and the, just kind of reminds me of me of that but um anyway i'm sure like i said i'm sure a lot of people have similar stories in their family and, uh... i spy with my little eye Okay, so I Spy is where we look at some of the little details that might have otherwise escaped people's notice. I Spy, uh, Snake Eyes wearing sunglasses on Night Recon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Again, rules rules of the comic. Page 13, panel 3. The team is, uh, I think burning human waste burning feces in mm. those buckets which i learned from the nom the other marvel comic that i've, that uh-huh. I've talked about uh so this i did wonder this you know this they're not burning food or trash they're they're burning feces because that's definitely what it is in fact <laughs> uh you and that's and that's a and that's a that's a job that you don't want to, to do that like Someone, someone has to do, and either like the last person, you know, back from, like dinner has to do as a punishment, or the person who loses at cards, or the whole team has to do it because they're in trouble. Uh, it's not fun. Yeah, in fact, I think in the plot, I think Larry even said we we won't specifically say that, but that is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is uh, uh Andrew the uh the the nurse or the the um. The donut dolly, uh, the first aid. Sorry, the uh, the Red Cross uh, 
woman who kisses Snake Eyes on the cheek, did the plot suggest that she look a certain mm-hmm. way or look like someone? Did you have someone in mind, or is this just a... Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, she was supposed to... Yeah, she was definitely supposed to look reminiscent of the sister. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That, that okay. Ah. In fact, that's even... Um, isn't that referenced in, in the dialogue? Doesn't he say that she, she thinks that he's looking at her for different reasons? Yeah, but, but I, I was know. wondering if it's like, you know, make her look like this famous actor or like, you know, if you had uh, someone in mind. Uh, but yes, it's uh, I understand that it's it's sort of maybe less interesting and more direct than I than I was guessing, uh, which is totally fine. Yes, it is in the plot. Yeah, she wasn't supposed to look like a specific actress. Um, I did kind of... Larry had sent me some reference photos of Donut Dolly's and I had, you know, done some reference online. And um, there was one that kind of like, I, I kind of, it was a mix of like making her look like a sister and trying to make her look kind of like a real one that I was, that looked kind of like had the right kind of face. Um, so uh, one of mine was that I spy uh, Tommy using the Swedish K um, whereas in issue 43 flashback, Wade had these, th- that, that gun. And um, that, that could be an error detected, but it's not. This is just Larry doing his thinking. It's not uh, because of inconsistency. It's, be- it's because in this story, uh, Tommy is the point man. So that is the, the weapon that uh, is provided to the point man for, for that position in the, in the team. And on that particular flashback, it was Wade who was on point and so would have been using uh, that gun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was very specifically pointed out by Larry. Uh, I spy uh, a Larry Hama sketch dated 2020 of Sherlock um, in the final column of the letters page. Um, it's it's right. not called out as anything in particular. It, it reminds me of... Uh, when you'd read uh, an issue of G.I. Joe in the late 80s and at the bottom of the third column of the letters page would be next month's cover and it would say next month and sometimes that was actually to get you to know what the next month's issue looked like and I think a lot of times it was to fill space because you have to know sort of how many words are going to fill how much of your page. And if you have like two inches left to fill as the editor or the designer of that page, sometimes it's just easier to slot in some art. Like let's just grab a, a close up of a panel from this issue they just read and stick it in and we can f- plug that hole of two inches. So I like this both as a reminder that we're going to see Sherlock next issue, but also um, as a, as a hole plug. Um, Andrea, have you, uh, that was the end of my Ice Spies. Andrea, have you, have you remembered any tiny little details that you might have snuck in that we might have eluded our, our, our eyes so far? Yeah, I'm not seeing anything at the moment. I did just see a coloring error, but I, I don't, I, I don't I, it's a little <laughs> late now to point that out. Um, um, but I did, <laughs> the second time you see Scarlet and Stalker, um, part of the, you see a bit of the, entrance into Fort Wadsworth and there should be between the roof of the ramp of I'm, I'm sorry between the roof of the vamp and that there should be some sky but it's filled in all green I'm not but um, um, but anyway it's not a I, I, it's probably something no one even I will knows. write that email I, spied it though. <laughs> I will write that email to letters at idwpublishing.com with a small request to fix that mistake for future digital versions and the print recollection Overall, I think like James did a phenomenal job on the colors in this issue. Um, I was really happy 
with them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see too much. Like, I know that, like, I put a decent amount of thought into what was like on the shelves inside of the, I can't think of the word for the, um, the, the, Quonset, Quonset hut? The, the, like, yeah, um, the, on the shelves, you know, like I was thinking about like, well, what would be there, you know, magazines and some, maybe some cups and like different things. I know I put a fair amount of thought into what would actually be the things on the shelves. But um, it's funny, you were talking earlier about covers and how it bothers you when the cover doesn't match um, so well with what the issue is and things. And it does bug me too, when like there's an issue like this that I'm really happy with that like, I really wish I could have had the cover just to have the complete package, you know, uh, myself like to have mm. more ownership of it or whatever. But that was one of the situations where the other issues were getting a bit behind and like um, they already, they had to have someone else do the covers for these. So like by the time I caught up and was able to do this, the covers were already accounted for and in, in the solicits and stuff. So I wasn't able to do a cover for this one, but it would have been nice to be able to do a, a cover. I think I would have done something more like the LRP team, kind of like one of Larry's sketches or something, but um, you know, it is what it is. I've got one last I spy now that we're talking about covers. Uh, cover B, Alex Sanchez's signature is a word I don't quite recognize. Ironhead. I-R-O-N-H-E-D? Yeah, that's like his nickname, his handle. Oh, okay. For, Thank uh, you. I think I think his I think like his Instagram account is something like Iron. Okay. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hoses, blue ninjas, and some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. The I mean, and this this whole issue to some degree is you know it's it's Larry Hammer you know through the center like a stick of rock. But um, what the one of the ones that uh, stuck out for me was the uh, the barrel of the M60 as it was being fired is glowing white and so translucent you could see the bullets passing through it. Remarkable continuity as as well with uh, Tommy and his asbestos uh, oven mitts that uh, that does call back to to some previous sequences uh, where where um, Tommy was the. Uh, the man to to help out uh, Snake Eyes with his um, M60 barrels. I want to talk about Mark's observation from a moment ago, for a moment. A couple times on this show, when we've interviewed an artist who's drawn a Hama issue, we have asked them what it's like to draw from a Larry Hama plot. And similarly, in some interviews that I've read or one that I've conducted, um, I, I, I have learned that... Um, Hama writes his plots in a visual way. And I think sometimes when someone hears that on this podcast or like reads that in an interview, they sort of nod and but maybe don't quite know what that means. And um, uh, someone who I think is a lesser writer once wrote uh, an issue of uh, a very popular Wildstorm comic in like 1993. And the guy who drew that issue handed me the script and I read it and I thought, Huh. This is like this is sort of exciting as like plots go, but like it, it didn't it didn't uh, it didn't sort of make me excited. And years later, I'm thinking about like what artists have said about write, re drawing a Larry Hama plot or what Larry has talked about in writing one. And this goes back to him also being an artist um, and him 
he's like seeing the story in pictures. I don't know if that's a movie playing out in his head or he's seeing panels and pages and then he just sort of transcribes it in script mode. And if he could draw faster or easier, he might just do breakdowns for every issue or he might just draw an issue. So this scene right here, everyone who's listening, where Stalker is narrating and it was so translucent you could see the bullets passing through it, right? The lands and rifling had been shot out and there was, uh, so there was decreased gas pressure and the rounds were largely ineffective, but he kept right on shooting. That is, that's like three things at once that to me are like very Larry Hama. One, it's the physicality of an object, mechanically how it works. Two, it is, it is something that it sort of is inherent to a character, right? Like this character is doing something that's difficult or futile, but they're still doing it anyway. And three, it is a striking visual. And there are lots of great comic books written by great writers where the script isn't necessarily full of or has any striking visuals. And it may be the artist who creates striking visuals, certainly is creating any visualization out of these words, the character, the plot. I don't think we would ever get, I mean, certainly it's a combat scene at Vietnam. This isn't going to show up in an issue of Uncanny X-Men, right? I know that's always my go-to when I'm comparing G.I. Joe to some prototypical issue of Uncanny X-Men. No one will ever write a three-panel sequence like this in an issue of X-Men, ever. No, I, I think you're right. Like, and that was very specifically plotted out by him that, that you know, that even before it got to the dialogue phase and the plot and stuff that you'd see the bullets passing through the translucent barrel and stuff. And it, yeah, it did feel very, very Larry Hama-esque, that, that, that little sequence. Uh, I had some Larry Hama colloquialisms to, uh, to, to talk to, if, you, if uh, you're ready for that. There used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of, of some renown. He's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Um, so this is the segment where we look at some unique language uh, and phraseology that, that we wouldn't normally encounter outside of the pages of a G.I. Joe book. Um, and and uh, try and uh, explain away what they they mean. So uh, first up is SOS, which is what they're talking about eating back in the mess hall. Any knowledge or guesses of the meaning of that? I'm going to guess that one or both of those S's is a four-letter word. <laughs> That's right. The first one is. <laughs> so it is shit on shingle. It's uh, meat and gravy over biscuits or toast, a staple of a staple of the uh, messel. So I think in the plot it was just described as slop. So I just kind of I just kind of drew it as like some slop, basically. <laughs> so if you don't see toast or something, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, make, it makes makes sense. Some sort of yeah, generic sort of slop, not particularly appetizing. Um, the next one up I had was Carl. Gustav, 
which is uh, a specific uh, weapon. The um, I'm going to flub this. The Kul Sprit S Pistol M45, known as the Carl Gustav M45, and the Swedish K SMG is a nine by nineteen millimeter Swedish submachine gun designed by Gunnar Johnson, adopted in 1945. It was the standard submachine gun of the Swedish Army from 1945 to 1965, and during the Vietnam War, the U.S. Navy SEALs used it extensively because of the gun's qualities, which appeals to them uh, mostly around the fact that the M45 could fire almost immediately out of the water. Uh, and yeah, again, a, a hammer is in there, very specific weaponry. Um, we had a, a good little phrase uh, here, uh, which was that Stalker had come from the Repel Depel. Any guesses on that one? Oh, uh, 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 the Nam used to have a glossary. Every issue would have a glossary, <laughs> um, in, in the beginning of the letters page for all the jargon, which is how I learned, you know, all this stuff like LZ, uh, is, is this where you, like the supply, was this the supply closet? Like where you get your, mm. sorry, I don't know. Close, close. In the con, in the context, it's where Stalker has come from uh, to to fill in this gap in the in the unit, and uh, it stands for replacement depot, repel depot. Uh, so it's term U.S. military terminology for a unit containing reserves or replacements. Okay, it is funny. Remember, like thinking of how many terms like this I've learned reading Jejo comics, especially when I was young, like LZ and learning about tracers and all that tracer fire and all that kind of stuff is like, it's amazing how much I learned reading these comics as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've learned here about green tri tracer fire in this, uh, in this issue, um, which, you know, visually looks quite un unusual, but uh, I imagine because it's been written by Larry that, that it's got a basis in, in fact, that, that, you know, you would, would they, they would be encountering green tracer fire and it would, uh, you know, show show up as as these green lines. Well, that's something too. Is like I was trying to draw a tracer fire in a more modern way. Like in the old issues, it would almost look like little pellets, you know. But like when you look at actual photos of like when you see tracer fire and stuff, it almost looks like a like a long line with like bits of bits of like streaks in it, almost like the bullets in the translucent barrel, you know. So I was trying to like draw like a long line that he could color in the tracer fire, but. I don't know, it's, it's kind of a tricky thing to try to draw and get right, you know? Yeah, I, I guess one of those things that you never know for sure unless unless you've actually encountered it in real life, what, what um, you know, what it would look like visually. But, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, a striking and un unusual if effect um, in this particular sequence because we're so used to, uh, I guess, the sort, of the, the sort of yellows and oranges and reds of, uh, of gunfire. I, so so next up uh, is is the sequence that, that every guest dreads, which is error detected. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. You'll you'll be you'll be glad to know that my error detected is not art related, <laughs> um, and and actually I don't think is an error. I'm going to immediately no prize it. Um, so, so it's in in an uh, in the early sequence where uh, the the helicopter is landing, 
and and the 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 Bravo team, you know, comes in to say that they that they want the bodies treated with respect and that they'll they'll handle it. And the 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 guy there says, uh, "No skin off my teeth." The expression, of course, should be "No skin off my nose." If you're not bothered about something, whereas if something is very you know a near miss, it's you know by the by the skin of your teeth. I th- I think um, Larry must must know that difference, and and I'm I'm explaining it away as a a character feature that you know people get these ex- these expressions you know confused and conflated all all the time. Yet only the other day that I heard. Uh, someone say the expression say boo to a ghost uh, and and was was adamant that it was boo to a ghost um so so yeah people people get confused by these expressions and and that's what's happening here it's a character feature not an error well i I already pointed out the error that i saw so (laughs) Um, (laughs) and i don't have any i guess wow because tim you you know tim is established as, as someone who does like these uh flashback issues to to be just right uh, and if he if he feels that there's something wrong he will write in a letter <laughs> there's certainly a lot of things i um, see where i'm like oh, i should have drawn that better or i could should have kept in mind how it would look with colors or you know it's like or i could have done better here or there but like you know like i said earlier it's always a matter of like how much time you have and how, how good you can do with the time you have <laughs> um Sure. Um, next up, we would normally have a favourite line of dialogue. I feel like we've quoted quite a lot of dialogue, so I, I've got nothing extra to, actually to to call out here. But um, if if either of you you guys have got a favourite line of dialogue that we've not touched on today, uh, please feel free. I agree with Mark. Okay. Um, cool. So I think that was it. Any concluding thoughts on on the on this issue? It was for for me. It was. A, you know, I've very much been in, enjoyed the murder by assassination uh, arc. I've really enjoyed the way that that's kind of motored along and introduced these new characters and, and sort of progressed the ongoing G.I. Joe plot. But as a solo issue, this is, you know, chef's kiss. Um, great to to go back to that era, flesh out, you know, all of these key characters um, and spend some, some time with them. And, and yeah. Uh, a real sort of walk, uh, walk through their boots. A lot of atmosphere. Yeah, a great, a great issue to to put in the hands of a of a lapsed GoJo reader and try and persuade them of their, uh, you know, of pers- persuade them that they should be reading the book. My wrap up thought is that this was a stunning issue. It was powerful and heartbreaking and. Um, a, a nice change of pace from from recent issues, you know, from an arc, a different kind of self-contained spotlight issue. But, you know, if it feels like, oh, this issue was so good, isn't it obvious that Hama should go back and do A, more flashbacks, B, more like origin stuff, C, more Vietnam stuff? I don't think any one kind of issue is easier or harder to write than any other. I think they're all equally hard to write. Um, you know, like staring at a blank page or a blank document in, in a word processor. It's like, you know, the writer of any book, this book particularly, has to contend with a lot of history, uh, different kinds of fans wanting different kinds of things. And whether it's like a new story with new characters, uh, a new story with old characters, or sort of an finger quotes old story, a flashback, 
Um, what, what I mean to say is just because this issue turned out so well and it sort of looked easy, like, oh, yeah, we, we get this like origin of the first time this happened and Stalker and Snake Eyes and, Stor- and Storm Shadow um, doesn't mean it was actually easier to make. Maybe it was harder. Um, well, I'm just glad glad to hear you guys like you know, enjoyed the issue so much. It was definitely a, a thrill to get to work on it and um, put a lot into it. So it's always nice when people, you know, enjoy it. Um, it the, the only one, one downside about this, like I said, was it would have been nice to do an issue like this and also be able to do the cover and have the complete package. But, um, you know... So that, that that was my one downside to this issue, but um, maybe maybe a fan can uh, throw some money your way and uh, have you do like a full page quote cover commission. It's like the cover you oof, you would draw for this issue, and then maybe you can put it um, on the internet, and then maybe IDW will run it as a variant for some other issue, and then you can sort of <laughs> sort of have those things together. <laughs> There you go. Some things, things happen like that now and then. I could be that fan, perhaps. I'll um, I'll shoot uh, you an, an email. <laughs> yeah, get get in touch. Um, cool. This is where Mark asks you uh, to to uh, promote your website or Instagram, etc. Um, I usually go by um, Glove Studios, like Glove, like on a hand, and that just goes back to years ago before I did comics. I was trying to start my own like design company kind of thing, and I needed a name. And I, I, I was looking at websites that weren't taken yet. I was like, how about something studios? And I, something reminded me of a glove. And I'm like, I could say, you know, like I could tell a story around that, like design services that fit like a glove or something. Anyway, so I ended up naming my design services or whatever glove studios. So I just went with that when I needed a name for my internet handles and things. So um, on Twitter and Instagram, um, glove studios. Um, also, I have a, a store in store. It's not really active right now, but. A lot of times I'll have prints and stuff on there. It's Glove Studios at Store Envy, um, Art Station, DeviantArt. I'm also Glove Studios. So, um, and then when I have commissions open and stuff, I, I have a blog on Blogger. So it's Blogspot um, Glove Studios. So whenever I open up commissions for conventions and things, I'll put the, the details there. But I'll usually promote that also on like Twitter and um, Instagram and stuff. So that's usually where you can find me. Excellent. Uh, people do seek, seek out Andrew and uh, hopefully it won't be too long before we see you back in the pages of G.I. Joe. Thanks again and thanks for being so generous with your time. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, th- yeah thank you very much. Uh, nice to talk with you guys and hopefully I'll talk with you more in the future. And I also hope to get back on the books as soon as possible, especially, you know, I'd love to do stuff for the 40th anniversary. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, I was that little kid who was super excited about these new G.I. Joe toys 40 years ago. <clears throat> 40 years ago. So um, it, it would be great to take part in that, too, in the anniversary. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Cool. Uh, so that was great. It's uh, fantastic to have uh, Andrew on and to, to find out more about uh, the behind the scenes of uh, these last uh, five issues that he's been working on in particular uh, issue 286. I knew that cover to 285 felt like Golden's cover to yearbook two and one. Yeah. We called it. We called yeah. it. But um, yeah, do you want to, do you want to give a Yojo score? I do. It's an eight. Uh, this is an eight. Yes. Wow. Uh, as, as you know, because I'm a grump, 
Um, it, it would be <laughs> uh, a, a real challenge for uh, IDW GI Joe to get to a nine or a ten because I would prefer uh, this comic to be printed on not glossy paper, and I like a different take on colors. However, um, this issue was excellent, powerful, memorable. Uh, I uh, if you are a lapsed reader. Uh, if I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, if you're not thinking of reading this issue, um, buy this issue, read this issue, love this issue. Yeah, I think I'm in this in the same boat there, Tim. Um, I think, uh, yeah, great, great story, great art. Um, eight from me, maybe, maybe with um, a different cover and and uh, and perhaps slightly more um uh, i don't think the colors are, are, are bad but i think slightly more period covers uh, colors um so it's sort of more in keeping with the you know some of the the issues that have come come before it would have been nice to kind of perhaps differentiate the the current day sequence with 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 perhaps uh, uh you know the, the the flashbacks which is most of the issue being be may, maybe closer to the kind of original um coloring style of of the likes of issue you know 26 and so on um but yeah very strong um so tim we know where we can find andrew but where can people find you my brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts is in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, hubcomics.com. Also hubcomics at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, me and G.I. Joe, I'm at a realamericanbook.com. You can find the show at talkingjoe.co.uk. That's co.uk. And that has all of the links to all of the things that we do. So it has links to all of the different podcasts on the different platforms, including on YouTube, where we uh, we post the podcast with additional visual content. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also on email. So if you ever have a message for the show, you can find us very easily. We're also on Patreon, so a big thanks to our backers, Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin, who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. And by early, I mean really super early now because uh, some we you know we're we've recorded a, a little bit of content extra uh, you know ahead of time from from release so so yeah so some of those episodes are really super early for those guys um now i think that's us done but remember uh nobody beats talking joe a real american podcast somehow presented by a guy from england later and i won't say wankers i'll say great listeners who are really respected and loved uh, except for one who's my brother and he is a wanker. Bye. <laughs>